Good morning, everybody. It's March 9th, 2023. This is a, uh, the, our first planning board session with uh, three new members. We have Mitra Petamim, Sean Bartley, and James Hardwick. I hope I... Hedrick. Uh, uh, one of the things I've asked for permission from the day one was to mispronounce people's names and get corrected, <laughs> where I forget people's names and I get to learn them again, over and over and over again. But that's just me. It's one of my my many failings. But uh, I'll ask the uh, the new planning board members to introduce themselves for a minute or two. Uh, Mr. Barkley, Commissioner Barkley. Thank you, Chairman. My name's Sean Bartley. It's a pleasure to serve Montgomery County. I was overwhelmed and delighted when I had the opportunity to interview um, for the Planning Commission. And I put my best foot forward, and I was hopeful that I would get an opportunity to serve. I've served privately in nonprofit 501c um, corporations throughout my time living here in Montgomery County for the past, I think, 21 years. Um, it's an esteemed honor to serve the citizens of Montgomery County. I'm originally from Southern California. My family still lives there. And they often ask, why did I stay in Maryland? And I said, well, I live in the best county in the United States. And they often say in California, we have the sun, the sand, and the mountains. And I often point out to them, we have parks and livable communities that thrive. And so I'm delighted to be of service to you all, and I'm hopeful that in my service I can continue the tradition of a livable Montgomery County. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, uh, Mitra Pedowin, who's no uh, stranger to this building. Uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Mitra Pedowin, and I'm honored to be here serving in this capacity. Um, many of you may know me or you have heard of me. I'm a resident of Montgomery County for 40 years. My children were born here, including my grandchildren. I have two grandchildren that they were born here. And um, I have worked for the government for 41 years. Um, I'm an immigrant, a Jewish immigrant from Iran that I got my asylum uh, when the revolution started. I got my degrees both, uh, you know, finished my degrees both in civil engineering and master in structural engineering in University of Maryland in College Park. I worked for five years in a state highway administration designing bridges around the state of Maryland. Then I started uh, working as engineer, uh, structural engineer for Montgomery County government. Uh, for Department of Transportation. I was there for 15 years. I uh, knew all the bridges, handled all the bridges for uh, uh, Montgomery County government. Uh, uh, I worked for transportation uh, for uh, 15 years uh, as a senior engineer, and then I moved to, again, Montgomery County Office of Management and Budget, handling the budget because I wanted to learn more about the government. And that's where I had the budget for the commission, both uh, capital improvement and uh, operating. Uh, I was there for three years, and that ended uh, uh, to my career uh, with uh, Maryland National Capital Park and Planning Commission. I learned all about it in OMB, and then I came there 
and worked with uh, Mike Riley. Um, uh, at that time, I was the chief of construction. After five years, I was the uh, division chief for park development, handling all the capital improvement for parks. And then I was the deputy director for five years. And during my 15, 16 years, tenure with uh, commission, I learned everything about on the other side of the uh, planning board. Uh, I was sitting there giving presentations for different parts of the uh, projects that they were doing. And then I retired. Ten months in my retirement, I was uh, appointed by county executive to be the Department of Permitting Services. And then after three years, I retired. And here it is. In two months, I'm back here. I keep telling my children I'm like a bad check. I keep coming back. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I'm very honored and happy to be here. And as Sean said, uh, my goal is that to make our county much better and livable community to live where it's time for me to give back to my community that has given so much to me and my family thank you thank you uh, this this retirement and coming back has a theme here i think somehow but <laughs> but i'm not sure uh, uh commissioner hedrick all right thank you howdy everybody i'm james hedrick um i uh i'm not retired and i kind of wish i was <laughs> sometimes uh, but my background is mostly in uh, affordable housing and uh, housing development, housing finance. Um, spent several years traveling literally from uh, Puerto Rico all the way to Alaska, working with uh, cities and counties on affordable housing and development. So I'm happy to be really happy, really excited to be here, really happy to be able to serve with everybody. I think we've got a really great, great group. And I'm, it's, been a, it's been a fun week to get to meet everybody and read several different, several binders that are very, very large. I appreciate everybody's help with that. Uh, but I think I just echo what uh, Amitra and Sean have said is that uh, doing our best to make it a livable community, doing our best to, um, you know, bring our housing and make it as livable and wonderful a community as it can be. So thank you, everybody, for being here. I appreciate uh, the opportunity. Great. Thank you. Now, I have to tell my new commissioners that traditionally I would give a this day in history uh, for the day, but I forgot that upstairs somewhere. But um, so, but it's historic that we have three new members that are, that are uh, going to uh, help out the commission here. So uh, will you please, uh, uh, congratulations, number one. And number two, welcome to uh, some significant service. OK, with that, let's go to our first items, which is extensions. Gee. Uh, first, we have Glenmont Metro Center, 8 201801 2 d and 1-2013-008-B. Uh, this is the fourth, fourth uh, extension request. Um, uh, they're almost done. They want to extend so they make sure they don't get another extension. I note that the extension will be till uh, July 6. Can I hear a motion? Uh, Mr. Chair, I'd like to move Whoop. that we... Yeah. Oh, yes, Please. Yeah. No, you have to turn on your mic. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Now that it's on. I'd like to move that we um, accept the uh, regulatory extension request, Glenmore Metro Center, 820210180. Eight two zero one five zero one two D and one two zero one three zero zero eight B. 
And I understand that this is the regulatory extension request number four until July 6, 2023. Do I hear a second? Seconded. All right. <laughs> well, okay. you can do the next one. Um, uh, seeing no further discussion, all those in favor say aye. 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 Okay, our first bit of business. Now for a second bit, bit of business, which is also an extension. This is sketch plan number 3-2022-0100 and preliminary plan number 1-2022-0140, Federal Plaza West. Um, uh, this project was uh, given some significant work by staff to work out uh, <coughs> some various things before they get here. And I didn't see how far they're going to extend, but uh, I'll accept a motion to approve the, approve the extension. And somebody? Yes, I can I'll, second. I'll, I'll move that we accept the... Uh, you have to turn on your mic. Oh. All right, there we go. I move that we accept the, uh, uh, the extension. Uh, regulatory extension, the sketch plan, uh, 320-220-1000, and preliminary plan number 12022-0140, Federal Plaza West. And Mr. Chair, I think they're just asking for a month and a half extension. You right. asked the question. It's the third extension it has to do with uh, DOT, they needing more time and a road um, uh, and a bike path, so I, I make a move that we accept it. Okay, Mr. Bartley, would you like to second? I second. <laughs> All right. <laughs> We're getting people on the record right away, so this is important. Um, uh, seeing no further discussion, all those in favor say aye. 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 Opposed? Nobody? Great. Okay, it's extended. We now have, uh, typically every week for our new uh, commissioners, we have a roundtable discussion alternating between the Planning Department and the Parks Department. Th this time it's the Planning Director's report. I'll turn it over to uh, uh, Acting Planning Director Stern. Good morning, Commissioners. Uh, Tanya Stern, Acting Planning Director for the record, and wanted to say again, welcome uh, to the Planning Board. We're definitely looking forward to continue to to work with the new board and with uh, the new members who have joined us today. So uh, for my planning director's report, I am going to uh, share some information that uh, we shared a little earlier at the end of last year. Uh, but since we have three new board members, we wanna share uh, some details about our work program for this year. Uh, for the planning department, we are focusing on uh, several cross-cutting areas of focus. Uh, the implementation of Thrive Montgomery 2050, the newly adopted general plan that was adopted uh, towards the end of last year. Our department has a very robust um, equity agenda um, in planning, which uh, we've uh, I've presented on it before, so hopefully you all will uh, receive a link. You can take a look at that um, to get more details. Uh, we're also very much focusing on making sure that the county provides housing for all, for all residents at all uh, price points uh, for all different types of needs. We very much use a, a data-driven approach for all of our work. And uh, my department also uh, works with county agencies and others uh, to implement the county's uh, focus on Vision Zero, which is reducing um, severe uh, injuries and fatalities for, for, for pedestrians and other road users. We have a very, very robust uh, work program uh, this year. We have several master plans. 
um, underway. Uh, there are two uh, two uh, master plan related efforts that we have recently completed our work with the planning board and they have now gone on to the county council. The first is the Rustic Roads Functional Master Plan. And uh, more recently, uh, there were uh, two proposals um, as amendments to the uh, Historic Preservation Master Plan. So again, we are uh, now just waiting for the county council uh, to take up those plans. There are two master plans um, that uh, with our new board members, you will have the opportunity to participate in the board's review. The first is the pedestrian master plan. This is a countywide plan uh, that has a number of recommendations for how to make walking and rolling uh, for those who use mobility devices safe um, and attractive and accessible across the county. There is a uh, the planning board is holding a public hearing for this plan on March 23rd, uh, so that's coming up very soon. And uh, shortly, the board will receive the working draft plan of the Fairland and Briggs Cheney Master Plan. This is a very important effort that's looking at how we can bring uh, better uh, investments, amenities, and other important changes for uh, this community in the East County. And in addition, again, we have several other plans and other major projects underway. The Tacoma Park Minor Master Plan Amendment, the Great Seneca Plan, the University Boulevard Corridor Plan, which we just kicked off uh, in uh, November of last year, the Incentive Density Guidelines Update, which is just kicking off, um, as well as the Friendship Heights Urban Design Study that will be uh, getting underway very shortly. We also have two other master plans in our work program for this year that we'll be launching a little later, the Clarksburg Master Plan and uh, Master Plan for the Silver Spring Communities. Again, we have, um, in addition to our master plans, we do a number of different studies and other initiatives. Uh, so uh, one we actually just recently completed is the Wheaton Downtown Study. Uh, that is a study that looked at uh, some ways to implement and kind of jumpstart a number of recommendations and focus, uh, focus areas from the from a 2012 uh, sector plan for downtown Wheaton. Um, I just mentioned the uh, incentive zoning update project, uh, Friendship Heights Urban Design Study. We also have another project underway in an innovative housing toolkit. Uh, we also um, will be, there's a project that was initially on our work program, but we're gonna take probably a slightly different direction with that and may incorporate it as part of one of our master plans, but that's looking at the life sciences industry and market study, and that's really looking more at the real estate side of that industry. And um, another project uh, which uh, we hope to revisit with the board later this year, the Attainable Housing Strategies Initiative, that actually kicked off back in 2021, a prayer request from the county council to identify uh, options for how to provide missing mental housing in the county. Uh, we uh, did quite a bit of work that year um, and it entered early 2022 um, and had some work sessions with the board, but it was put on hold because we wanted to focus on making sure the county council got through the rest of the approval process for Thrive Montgomery 2050. Um, and so again, we will be re revisiting that project um, at a later date because it is not completed. And then another major project that we'll be launching this summer is the uh, quadrennial update to the growth and infrastructure policy. This is, again, another very important tool that uh, the planning board uses to make sure that development projects meet the um, adequate public facilities ordinance, so stay tuned for that. Uh, we currently have uh, some legislation that uh, the planning department uh, drafted uh, that is uh, before the council right now. 
These are uh, no net loss of forest amendments to the county's forest conservation law. Uh, we actually just recently participated, maybe a couple of weeks ago, uh, or perhaps it was last week, with the uh, the T and E committee at the council um, on these um, on these amendments and got a lot of support for them. Um, and so we are uh, just waiting for it to get uh, in front of the full council. And uh, just really quickly, these amendments are intended uh, to make sure or to help ensure that uh, more forest is planted in a county than forest cleared by encouraging more forest planting, um, cont having continued protection for existing forests, um, and incentivizing less forest clearing. I also wanted to highlight, um, this is uh, something that's newer. Uh, again, there was a, the, uh, we gave a presentation, a little more in-depth presentation to the board a, a little couple of weeks or so ago, but wanted to highlight a really uh, great project that we are doing jointly with Montgomery Parks. This is the Remarkable Montgomery Untold Stories Historic Markers Program. Both of our departments have funding to do a certain number of historic markers, and so uh, the planning department will be uh, producing um, these two and installing these four uh, historic markers, uh, hopefully sometime this spring. Um, I wanted to highlight that the Remarkable Montgomery Untold Stories uh, sort of name and, and branding is actually a joint effort that we developed with Montgomery Parks so that we share the same uh, branding and focus uh, for this. And uh, there are uh, two of these markers uh, for which we will actually uh, be installing them on Parks properties. And so we will have our joint department's branding on that as well as uh, a common branding for, uh, for this project, whether the markers are going to be produced by the planning department or the parks department. Um, there are two that are related to the county's African-American history. One I will make note of is the Beltway March of 1966. This was a march um, in protest uh, against housing uh, segregation discrimination um, during in the county in the 1960s. And uh, this marker is actually going to be installed um, at the Forest Glen Metro Center, or Metro Stop, rather. The planning department also has and has had for a number of years a very uh, active placemaking initiative. This is an opportunity where we have worked with community members and other partners to uh, temporarily transform uh, and uh, often cases parking lots into um, areas that are um, provide entertainment, places to gather. Um, fun for kids and families and everyone within communities, and it's a way to re-envision how we can transform parking lots into places. Uh, so we will have some projects related to our uh, placemaking initiative that we will be doing um, later this year. We also are developing a strategic plan to um, take a look at some lessons learned based off, uh, based off of our experiencing doing these placemaking projects so far, but also looking at some new opportunities to further this work. I wanted to highlight uh, just some images from a great placemaking festival that we did last fall uh, in uh, Fairland and Briggs Cheney area, and this was tied to the master plan, um, which again, the board will be getting very shortly. And again, this was an opportunity to transform uh, part of the uh, parking lot by the parking ride um, in that community. It was a really great event, lots of fun. Um, and we also use that as a way to get uh, ideas and uh, feedback from community members 
on the master plan itself. This was before we even started drafting recommendations, so this is another great way to do community engagement. And then I'm going to close uh, with our design excellence initiative. This is, again, uh, a very important uh, focus for our department that you will see um, really demonstrated in the types of recommendations from our staff on uh, development proposals that will be before the board, as well as in uh, design guidance uh, related or tied to our master plans, um, as well as in Thrive Montgomery 2050, which has a whole design arts and culture chapter. We really feel that you know, Montgomery County is an opportunity, it is a space where we expect and would like to see uh, Architectural design excellence, design excellence for the public realm as well. That this is, you know, sometimes there's a notion that suburban communities, you know, shouldn't look as nice as cities, but we don't agree with that perspective. We think that every building project, every type of project that touches the public realm is an opportunity to bring quality and design for all of our communities throughout the county. And related to that, uh, the planning department co-hosts a uh, biennial awards program, the Design Excellence Awards, and uh, this is the year for the awards uh, program, and so that is going to be on October 19th, uh, right in this uh, room that we are in right now in our Wheaton headquarters. Uh, there are some images from the last event in 2021, and so all of the board members are invited to attend. Um, it's going to be a really great event. And, uh, oh, sorry, a couple more things. Um, wanted to also highlight uh, one of our really important functions that support both our uh, master planning and special studies uh, is our data uh, functions. We have a really great research and strategic projects division um, that does a lot of work focusing on data. They have a project um, that they will be wrapping up soon that helps to support our equity agenda in planning. It's called the Community Equity Index. I will uh, save more details for that later. Uh, we are also uh, participating in um, the latest update to the population and jobs forecast that uh, every jurisdiction in this region participates in um, working with the Metropolitan Washington Council of Governments. Uh, so again, um, that's a really, really important, um, these updates to the forecast are very important because we use that data to inform um, a lot of our work. It helped to inform a lot of the um, sort of background and assumptions for Thrive Montgomery 2050. It informs a lot of different things, but we need to you know, make sure that these numbers are updated periodically. And related to uh, talking about COG, the planning department, um, myself as well as a number of other staff, we participate in several opportunities for regional coordination. I, um, along with uh, additional staff such as Carrie McCarthy, who's the chief of the Research and Strategic Projects Division, and Robert Cronenberg, deputy planning director, participate in COG's monthly planning director's technical advisory committee. Um, I've actually had the opportunity to serve on this uh, or to participate in, in this committee back from when I was still working for the DC Office of Planning. And it's a really great opportunity uh, because it brings together planning directors uh, and their um, key staff from around the entire region, and we can talk with each other about the uh, common issues, concerns that we're all working on and can learn from each other. We also attend COGS, uh, I think these are now bi-monthly region forward coalition um, meetings. These, are, these may actually be of interest to planning board members. 
uh, these the Region 4 coalition um, meetings are ones that have both elected officials as well as agency representatives. Um, the Region 4 coalition is actually co-chaired by two elected officials. And again, this is a way to uh, learn from um, different initiatives that are going on around the region, around major topics that we're all concerned about, such as housing, transportation, um, equity, sustainability, et cetera. So this may be of interest to the board members. I mentioned the regional forecast. Um, I also am participating in the Washington Housing Conservancy Stake Stakeholder Council. The Conservancy um, is an organization that uh, has purchased um, naturally occurring affordable housing properties around this region. I believe they have about own two properties in Montgomery County, and they've pulled together the Stakeholder Council, which meets at least a couple of times a year, again, to talk about you know, housing issues at a regional level. And then uh, we also uh, have regular meetings with NAOP and MBIA. These are two organizations that represent the development community uh, where we're not talking about specific development projects. We're sharing the work that the planning department is doing, kind of having these broader conversations outside of the context of a specific regulatory matter. And um, myself and other staff are also very active members of the Urban Land Institute and its local district council, the Washington District Council, which brings together uh, professionals in the real estate planning design professions, um, again, to talk about a lot of these issues. So that concludes my presentation. I'd be happy to take any questions. Well, first, there's going to be a commissioner's test in, in 20 minutes on what you've just heard. Uh, I, uh, you know, these, uh, this is our, our first meeting here. Uh, certainly, you'll have other opportunities to uh, uh, talk with the planning director, but uh, are there any questions? I just would like to say that I've always been very impressed by uh, the planning director and the staff in terms of their involvement, like you mentioned, in all those different associations and groups, uh, ULI, uh, and um, your workload here internally and externally is just extraordinary. So I'd like to congratulate you. I think in the future it'd be nice to know how commissioners can be involved, like in the regional forward mm -hmm. group or whatever ULI. Uh, I'm sure that uh, many of them have interest, so if, if you can maybe drop us a, an email or something and let us know how we can get involved uh, in any of the meetings. But thank you very much. Certainly, we'll be happy to do so, and thank you for the, thank you for the appreciation. Commissioner Bartley. Thank you for the presentation. I look forward to learning more about your ambitious agenda and the specific programs. And I'm specifically interested in the parking lots into places initiative and the bridge training development. I'm looking forward to receiving information on that. Thank you. Sure. Bridge training will get a lot on soon. It's on our future yes. agendas already. Yes. That will come up pretty quick. Yes. Uh, anybody else? Thank you for your report. All right. Uh, are we ready to go to item 10? We are?
Good morning. It's still March 9th, 2023. Uh, we're broadcasting from beautiful downtown Wheaton. We invite you to join us. We're on item 10. Uh, it's uh, 7340 Wisconsin Avenue, sketch plan amendment uh, number 320-2001A uh, and preliminary plan number 1-1994-08-OC. And site plan number 82023010. Uh, I believe the uh, applicant wishes a, a continuous on this matter, and staff has no objections to that. Mrs. Uh, uh, Ms. Harris, do I have that correct? As the applicant's representative, do you wish a continuance? Um, yes, please, to March 24th. I hope not. Uh, that would be a Friday. Sorry, 23rd. <laughs> okay. And, uh, all right. Um, do we need a motion for that? I don't think so. Yes? Uh, for a continuance, yes, you would need a motion. We do need a motion. <laughs> I'll, I'll uh, accept a motion to that effect. I move that we grant the continuance. Uh, do I hear a second? Second. All right, I have a motion and a second. All those in favor say aye. 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 To the 23rd, which will be a Thursday. Thank you. <laughs> All right, thank you.
Good morning. It's still March 9th, 2023. This is uh, Planning Board Session Item Number 5, uh, Corso Chevy Chase Local Map Amendment H-148 uh, and Preliminary Forest Conservation Plan. This is a public hearing. We do have two speakers and the applicant. Uh, in terms of order, I'll turn it over to planning staff first for a presentation. I'll then uh, call for the uh, two speakers, and then I'll let the applicant speak after that. Um, it's all yours. Uh, thank you. Uh, good morning, Chair and Commissioners. My name, for the record, is Elza Heisel-McCoy. I'm the Chief of Down County Planning. Uh, and we have the good fortune to have uh, a number of projects in front of you today. Uh, we we welcome you, and as we go through each one, um, we will be sure to highlight uh, not only the facts of the application, but also the relevant process and decision points, um, and we'll, of course, answer any uh, process or substantive questions you have. And uh, with that, I will turn it over to Mr. Gatling. Good morning. For the record, Saquon Gatling with Down County Planning, presenting the Corso Chevy Chase project, which includes local map amendment and preliminary forest conservation plan, both designated number H148. And staff is recommending approval of the local map amendment with binding elements and conditions to be transmitted to the hearing examiner, and as well as approval of the associated preliminary forest conservation plan. With this LMA application, staff would like to offer a brief refresher for the process involved. Local map amendments change the zoning for a specific property, creating a floating zone, and are subject to the requirements of the zoning ordinance section shown on the screen. Today, the planning board will be asked to make a recommendation, which will, be, which will then be transmitted to the hearing examiner. The hearing examiner will re review the case and finally provide a recommendation to the county council. And if approved by the council, the applicant must file subsequent preliminary plans and site plans for the applications. Unlike the LMA, the board's decision on the associated preliminary forest conservation plan is regulatory and binding. <clears throat> Chapter 22A, forest conservation law, requires that a forest conservation plan is submitted at the first application. And if approved, this plan will be followed by a final forest conservation plan with the subsequent applications to the department. Focusing on the site, the 13.64-acre property is currently zoned R60 and is within 1990 Bethesda Chevy Chase Master Plan. The subject property is located on the western side of Connecticut Avenue between Maryland State Highway 410 East-West Highway and Maryland 191 Bradley Lane. The property is located within the town of Chevy Chase, and on the opposite side of Connecticut Avenue, we have Chevy Chase Section 5 and Chevy Chase Section 3. Zooming in a bit closer, we can see that the property currently features a service parking lot and internal roads servicing the former campus buildings, which most recently served as headquarters to the National 4-H organization. The image to the right on the screen shows the tree line entrance in the background on the right side of the image, which, which then loops around to the foreground showing the southern exit. Staff would also note that shown on the map to the left, just above the subject property, is the historic Stefano Lozophone House, which is not expected to be affected by this application. The applicant is requesting to rezone the property from R60 to a commercial residential neighborhood floating zone, CRNF 1.5 with a commercial density of up to 0.25, residential of 1.25, and a height of 70 feet. The proposal includes up to 700,000 square feet of mixed-use density for a residential care facility, 
and the facility is proposed to contain up to 287 independent dwelling units, 190 assisted living beds, and 30 memory care beds. 5,000 square feet of commercial and retail use is also proposed with the application, and this will be accessible to the surrounding community as well as those within the Corso property. MPDU requirements for this site will be determined by the Department of Housing and Community Affairs at the future site plan stage, and there's also an associated FCP, as mentioned, which we'll get into a bit later in the presentation. As indicated in the binding elements, all vehicular access will, to and from the site will occur on Connecticut Avenue, and the applicant is currently studying potential configurations for the access point. Once the study is complete, the applicant will work with planning, MCDOT, and uh, the State Highway Administration staff to refine the design and operation, and it will be finalized at the subsequent preliminary plan stage. Streetscape improvements on Thornapple Street and Connecticut, and Connecticut Avenue will be required at time of site plan. And in these next few slides, I will provide a brief overview of the proposed facility. As you can see, the diagram on the screen, it shows how the applicant proposes to maximize the neighborhood compatibility through implementation of generous setbacks and height and reduced heights at the perimeter of the property. To the north along Thornapple Street, no setback is required. However, the applicant has proposed a setback of 81 feet. And to the left, a larger setback is proposed of 145 feet to the rear of the property, while 45 feet is provided to the south. A maximum height of 70 feet is allowed within the floating zone, and the applicant has provided heights in the range of 47 to 53 feet at the perimeters of the property as shown in green on the slide. Oh, sorry, yellow and green. Building heights in blue are proposed at just over 66 feet, which provides well below the maximum of 70 foot, which remains in compliance of the zone. The renderings shown on the screen here show how conceptually the proposed development will fit into the neighborhood. View one, looking to the northeast towards the property, shows how the heights along the perimeter aid in maximizing that compatibility between the neighborhood's existing buildings, while view two looks at the entrance of the site across from Taylor Street um, across Connecticut Avenue. View three looks southwards towards the property uh, so you can see the architecture, but I would also like to note that this view has taken liberties to display that architecture. However, a proposed forest conservation easement will provide mature trees and landscaping along this view, which helps enhance the buffering and natural features of the site that are currently present. Uh, view 4 zooms in a bit closer to show the view from Thornapple Street, while View 5 shows the site near the southern pedestrian entrance near Woodside Place to the south. As part of this review, 21 binding elements have been included as a part of the plan, and these binding elements address the topics listed on your screen and have been developed between co with coordination between the applicant, the town of Chevy Chase, and planning staff. I will specifically highlight that vehicular access, construction management, and building heights are of importance as they relate to the community feedback that was received with this application, and the applicant continues to work to minimize neighborhood disruption as much as possible. All 21 binding elements are detailed in the staff report and can be discussed further if there are questions. Moving on to the forest conservation plan. The plan shows that the, applicant, the application has 3.71 acres of forest on the property with the proposed removal of approximately 0.74 acres. The applicant has also requested a variance for impacts to 15 specimen trees and removal of 15 trees 
two of which are designated as removal with intent to save, which means that these trees will be mitigated for, but will be monitored throughout construction and make and every effort will be made to save these trees on site if possible. A total of 123 caliper inches of mitigation plantings are proposed. And additionally, and additionally, nearly three acres of forest is to be retained and protected via category one conservation easement, which is represented roughly in the yellow area shown on your screen. Correspondence received as of the date of the staff report is included in the board's information packet and has been included as an attachment to the staff report as well. The topics addressed relate to traffic, setback and massing, density, construction, and protection of the natural environment. And discussion of these topics are covered in detail in the staff report and also reflected in the included binding elements and conditions of approval. Staff feels that the binding elements proposed address these issues, which will be further, further explored at time of preliminary and site plan. As for construction management, these will be addressed at time of building permit. Following the posting of the staff report, staff has one correction to the forest conservation plan conditions of approval at the request of the applicant. That is a request to include clarifying language shown on your, underlined on your screen, which relates to the allowance of above grade building features, such as balconies and bay windows, and below grade foundation within the building restriction line. This allowance is standard per the zoning ordinance reference shown, but has been added for clarity as the project moves forward. And with that, staff finds that the floating zone plan conforms with the master plan and meets the findings required for local map amendments. All noticing requirements have been met and therefore staff recommends approval of the local map amendment and transmittal of the binding elements and conditions of approval to the hearing examiner. We also recommend approval of the associated preliminary forest conservation plan. Thank you. Thank you for your presentation. Uh, we'll now hear from um, Joel Rubin, uh, uh, Vice Mayor of uh, Chevy Chase, and Andy uh, Harney, is she on? Uh, oh, she's here too? Okay, please come up. <laughs> it's been a long time. We used to work together. <laughs> My fellow board members will get used to that phrase where I say I've worked with somebody before, but that's from being as old as I am. Um, so you have less hair and I have more white hair. There you go. <laughs> Always good to point that out. Um, uh, Ms., uh, Vice Mayor uh, Rubin, you have uh, eight minutes if you wish to take it. Thanks, Chairman Sides. Uh, and hi, everybody. Welcome. <clears throat> Good to see you all and, uh, and colleagues, members of the planning board. Uh, my name is Joel Rubin. I'm vice mayor in the town of Chevy Chase. And uh, my colleague and, and mayor and Barney Rush regrets he couldn't be here, but I uh, want to take the opportunity to thank him for his leadership in the town in getting us to this point in our partnership, which has been very fruitful. I'm happy to speak about local map amendment H148. And uh, first, we'd like to thank the planning department for your vital role in reviewing this plan development. You've been available to hear our views, ensure we received information on a timely basis, and made the process to be followed very clear to us. It's been an excellent partnership. We appreciate the support for key proposed changes, particularly regarding the height of the buildings, a, a, a matter greatly important to us and to our residents, and we're grateful for the support. And finally, your help in crafting the binding elements that will run with the rezoning gives the town proper assurances related to the future processing of entitlements. We'd also like to thank the developers 
I'm going to turn around because I'll get <laughs> off my script. Uh, Community 3 and its president, Grant Epstein, and Gallery Living and its president, Tim Gary, they've made several presentations to our town residents. Several is an understatement. Uh, led us on a walk in our around the facility, hosted us for a visit to one of the retirement communities in Atlanta, and in general, <laughs> paid close attention to the town residents uh, and concerns in a very thorough engagement over the past year plus. On numerous points now embedded in the binding elements proposed for this LMA application, Corso has agreed to commit to matters of importance to the town. These include ensuring no new public streets through the property, providing certain paths connecting the development to our community, and placing three, acre, three acres of their land in a category one conservation easement. We also, and these were, I, I should also add, a high priority for the residents from the get-go, and we're, we're thrilled that, that they're, they're where they are. Uh, we also appreciate the reduction in building heights in the second resubmission, which respects our residents' strong desire that this new major development indeed is compatible with the surrounding homes. As a result of the modifications made to the plans, the binding elements set out in the application, and Corsa's commitment to the town to negotiate a separate agreement with us to account for matters not included in these binding elements, the town of Chevy Chase supports this LMA application. This is the unanimous view of the town council, formed after careful solicitation of the views of our residents, and we look forward to the timely development and construction of this project and to the course of the community and its residents becoming part of our town. We do have some comments on the clear and thorough report from the planning staff, and we requested the following changes be made to the binding elements as set out forth in, uh, set forth in this report. First, the traffic and parking studies should be undertaken and completed sufficiently in advance of preliminary plan of subdivision and site plan reviews so that the town and other interested parties can review these studies and thereby determine appropriate positions to be taken at the time of such reviews. The relevant binding elements in the staff report did not provide a date for these studies to com be completed. Second, binding element number 17 states that, quote, the outward-facing architectural facades along all sides of the property will be designed to read as four stories plus roof, with the exception of the northwest corner of the property, which shall be designed to read as three stories on top of the garage plus roof, end quote. This is the proposed memorialization of the change made to accommodate the request of the town for a reduction in the heights of the perimeter buildings. We request that this binding element also include a specific reference to the maximum height allowed for these outside facades, as stated in the building heights diagram submitted by the applicant, meaning 54 feet in general and 47 feet at the northwest corner from the established measuring point. To be clear, this is not a request to change the applicant's plan, but rather to ensure that the binding elements mirror the building heights exhibit. Third, we appreciate that there is a binding element requiring the establishment of a Category 1 conservation easement along the, quote, northern and western boundaries, end quote, of the property. But we note that the plans call for a portion of the property along the southern boundary to be included in this easement as well. We therefore ask that the word southern be added. Fourth, we also appreciate that in this same binding element, Corso commits to including the town of Chevy Chase Forester in the proceedings regarding the creation and maintenance of the conservation easement. We ask that the binding element be revised to make clear that our forester be included in the development and review of the final forest conservation plan, not just regarding the specific portion of the site to be placed in the easement. Fifth, regarding lighting, we suggest that the binding element refer to exterior rather than site lighting. Exterior is a broader term that will include any lighting of the buildings themselves. We recognize that there are many issues of great importance to the town that are not resolved during the LMA application process, but will be determined at the subsequent preliminary plan of subdivision and site plan reviews by the planning board. However, the LMA application commits course to specific measures that ensure town engagement 
on these issues. The most important of these are, first, stormwater management. A town-appointed engineer will be included in the review of stormwater management plans and strategies. In the revised plans, we take note of the use of green roofs. We find these to be a very desirable feature and encourage their implementation. Second is forest conservation. As mentioned above, the town forester will be included in discussions regarding the creation and maintenance of the conservation easement. In addition, Corso is committed in its letter to the town dated January 13, 2023, that it will <coughs> comply with the town's urban forest ordinance and seek applicable variances thereof. The town will seek, to the extent feasible, to preserve trees along the perimeter of the limits of disturbance and, where possible, other trees that are not within the footprints of the proposed buildings. Third, traffic. Corso commits to a comprehensive vehicular site access study referred to above, which will include a forecast of future traffic volumes and a signal warrant analysis. The applicant also commits to working with SHA and the town to determine the need for traffic management measures along Connecticut Avenue. We appreciate the specificity of this binding element and will pay close attention both to the impact of the project on ancillary traffic on town streets and to pedestrian safety. We're also supportive of other nearby communities along Connecticut Avenue being engaged in reviewing traffic control plans. Fourth, parking adequacy. Corso commits to undertake a parking demand analysis to ensure adequate on-site parking for all employees and visitors, including during times of peak use and visitation. Lastly, construction management. Corso will, in concert with the town, prepare and codify construction regulations to minimize the impacts of construction, including noise disturbances on town residents. In addition, the town will monitor compliance with all the other binding elements. We expect the town officials and consultants will be included as members of the Development Review Committee, which will discuss the issues to be addressed at the preliminary plan of subdivision and the site plan reviews, and will provide comments for the planning staff's consideration at the time of these reviews. The town also remains very interested in the final architectural designs that will be reviewed more intently at the site plan review. In closing, we look forward to a productive engagement with Corso, county agencies, the planning department, and the planning department to satisfactorily address the issues that will be resolved during the upcoming reviews. Thank you again for your service and for your commitment to this, and uh, look forward to your comments. Thank you for your testimony. Um, Ms. Harney, eight minutes. My name, my name is Andy Leon Harney, and I'm the village manager of Section 3 of Chevy Chase. And I'm here at the behest of our council to share with you some of the concerns of our residents as you review the Corso Chevy Chase LMA. Our community directly faces the proposed uh, development on Connecticut Avenue and will, of course, be directly impacted by it. For that reason, we ask the board to include Section 3 in the binding element number 2 which is the traffic study, and that we have an opportunity along with the town of Chevy Chase to review the findings from the binding element number three, which is the parking study, because traffic and parking are two of our most pressing concerns, as you can well understand. Um, we concur with the town of Chevy Chase that we need to have a traffic study well in hand prior to the site plan stage so that we can evaluate the conclusions. Uh, we'd like the bind that binding element number two be revised so that the last sentence would read, the applicant will conduct a traffic study <coughs> related to the property and the work of the State Highway Administration, the town of Chevy Chase, and section three of the village of Chevy Chase to determine the need, if any, of traffic-related measures along Connecticut Avenue. That seems a fairly reasonable request. We'd like the traffic study to include, among other things, the impact on traffic and pedestrian safety of the configuration 
of the entry and exits, crosswalks, and breaks in the median strip are to be retained as they are now. Ways to preclude increased cut-through traffic on, on Taylor Street, which is directly across from Corso. And finally, we'd like this study to evaluate some possible creative alternatives provided by a traffic engineer at the State Highway Administration. And if uh, someone can um, put up on your screen just to show you some examples, we asked uh, State Highway to just take a look at this in a preliminary way because we're so concerned about it. Um, and they gave us several um, concepts, which do you have in front of you now, or you will momentarily? Uh, this is as it is now. If you could go to the next. This is one of the alternatives. I'm showing you this not because we specifically endorse any one solution. We are not traffic engineers. But I was impressed by the creativity of these two options, one of many, um, that we would like to see the study recommend the safest solution uh, and, and show their justification for that. We're a little bit concerned that there may be uh, a desire on the part of the traffic study people who are being paid for by the developer to rubber stamp whatever it is they want rather than taking a look at all the creative solutions. This one um, shows entry and exit on one side only, and the other side, we see where the green arrows are, the other side would be for trucks and service vehicles only and fire and rescue. And there are lights that would um, give people an opportunity to cross Connecticut Avenue safely as a pedestrian, not cut through on uh, Taylor Street um, because the light would be phased in such a way that really wouldn't be um, very comfortable to sit at that light for that long. But people would be able to get in and out of our community um, at the same time. But it would stagger. It's a split phase alternative. There's another one as well, if you could show that, um, that shows what the developer would, would like, which would be an, an ability to enter at one uh, at the north side and exit at the south side. Our concern about that is that people would make U-turns in order to, on Connecticut Avenue, in order to go northbound on Connecticut. And we're, we're worried about accidents and traffic. So th those are just a few examples. And that, that's really all I need to, to show you about our concern about um, getting the safest possible solution in that area. Um, the other area that we're concerned about is traffic. Both residents of uh, Section 3 and the town of Chevy Chase have expressed understandable concerns regarding tra uh, parking. We don't want spillover parking at our largely 16-foot wide streets. We concur with the town uh, in its desire to have the parking study well in advance of site plan, uh, site plan and preliminary plan approval. The set formulas for the number of spaces required for independent seniors, staff, and visitors in the entire community alone really aren't sufficient because developers may want to um, integrate the development into the community, but they're also offering 5,000 square feet of commercial retail space. So if the retail plan is approved, then there should be adequate customer parking for those businesses, and more importantly, when you have 190 assisted living beds and 30 memory beds, families of those two groups often hire additional staff. 
uh, to come and watch grandma or grandpa, uh, sometimes even 24-7. So those numbers have to be taken into account in any parking study. And we want to make sure that that happens, not only because we want the community there to be self-sufficient and adequate for people who, generally speaking, don't make a lot of wages, but also we don't want them parking on our streets or in the town of Chevy Chase's streets. So um, we want to make sure that that parking study and, and the traffic study are done well in advance so we have an opportunity to assess them and make sure that they're, they're um, taking all the, the right um, aspects of this into consideration. The town has done an uh, the town of Chevy Chase and the staff have done an excellent job of working through many of the issues that will impact both our communities. And we join them in their desire to have these two studies, parking and traffic, done well in advance, at least a month or six weeks prior to the preliminary plan, so that we can all um, take a good hard look at them. And we ask that Section 3 be given a binding place at the table. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I think this is the first time I've ever been at a public hearing in Chevy Chase where there's only two speakers. Uh, I mean, it's some so remarkable to call work. Some people. Um, I, I just hope you you've presented your written testimony to staff and to the applicant. And now, if I could call the applicant back up. And, and I hope the applicant would address the testimony we just heard as, as well and what they're presenting and, and what's acceptable or not. Good morning, Mr. Chair and the board. My name is Steve Robbins with the law firm of Lord Charlie and Brewer. And I'm pleased to be here representing Corso DC LLC, the applicant before you for the local map amendment and the preliminary forest conservation plan. With me here today are Grant Epstein with Community 3, all the way down on the end there, and Tim Gary with Gallery Senior Living to my immediate right. On behalf of the applicant, we have Tim Hoffman and Keely Loretti with Soltes, our engineers and landscape architects for the project. Sarah Alexander with Torty Gallus, who's right next to Liz Rogers. Nancy Randall with Wells & Associates, our traffic and transportation consultant. And of course, my colleague Elizabeth Rogers from Lurcherland Brewer. A few preliminary matters. First, I'd like to congratulate the new board members on being selected. Congratulations. And to the two existing veterans, uh, congratulations and uh, thank you for your service as well. Um, I want to acknowledge the efforts of staff that participated in the evaluation of this application. Thanks to Grace Bogdan, who I guess is now out officially on maternity leave, um, and Saquon Gatlin, and also to Katie Macarini, who uh, all really worked very hard on this application. Also thanks to Stephanie Dickel and Elsa Hazel-McCoy for their leadership and work on the application as well. We truly appreciate it. It was really an excellent effort. As you heard, the applicant is seeking approval of the local map amendment to rezone the property from the R60 to the CN CRNF zone to accommodate the redevelopment of this longstanding institutional use with a senior living community. We think Saquon has given a great overview of the property, as noted, 
including the unique features of the property, which is the dense existing forest that surrounds the property on three sides and provides both a visual and physical, a physical buffer from the surrounding residential community, which we are maintaining and preserving with our application. As such, there are limited views of the building from the surrounding neighborhood. However, as our team will describe, the applicant has paid particular attention to ensuring co compatibility of the project's design with the surrounding neighborhood and has worked closely with the various stakeholders, particularly the town of Chevy Chase in which the property is situated, to accomplish this goal. I'd like to now turn the presentation over to Tim Gary with uh, Gallery Senior Living to just say a few words. Tim. Thank you. Um, this is quite an honor to sit for you and present our project today. Um, it's something we've uh, been proud of since the very beginning, and I will tell you we were very excited when we first came into Chevy Chase. Um, but I will tell you what excited us more was once we got to actually speak with the residents, meet with the residents, and talk with uh, the community, because what we found was a community who was supportive of, of our theories as well about having a livable environment and integrating into a community and supporting an entire family. So I would like to say thank you for allowing us to present this project and um, we look forward to answering all your questions. Thank you, Tim. And now I'll turn the presentation over to uh, Grant Epstein, who is with Community 3. Um, he's local here in the uh, Washington metropolitan area and has really spent most of the time working with not only with staff, but with the community as well. Grant? Thank, uh, thank you. I want to uh, also reiterate my thank you to staff who has been um, uh, available and um, very collaborative on this on this whole effort. So uh, I want to thank him for that. Um, and I also want to thank the town um, for um, for being involved in this process as well. This is this is not an easy thing for a jurisdiction who has a single family zoning to to get into a process like an LMA or or a site plan going forward and um, for, for them to, to learn and to understand and to participate and to, to share. Um, I, I give them a lot of credit, um, and I thank the, the vice mayor um, for, for his notes and uh, for the town support. Um, it, was, it was really based upon uh, uh, several large meetings, some that had over 200 participants um, uh, virtually, uh, but it also included, you know, about a dozen different uh, intimate conversations at people's homes um, surrounding the property uh, on street corners, um, looking at the physical elements. And as, as the, vice, um, the vice mayor um, suggested, uh, we even had a walk in hour, which was something new to me, where we, we walked with about 50 or 60 people through the, the forested areas to understand what forest conservation easements were, um, how stormwater management's handled, and really to see what would happen on the site once it was built. Um, We've continued that dialogue with, with the town and with staff um, and uh, with the rest of the surrounding community um, through the process uh, of our application and made significant changes thereof. Um, so we're very pleased to have support of the town of Chevy Chase uh, and look forward to being a part of that town uh, for many years to come. No. Yeah. Good morning. Pleasure to be here, and thank you to everyone for your help on this project. It's been surprisingly wonderful to work on this project, given, again, what Grant said, that we are putting um, 
not a single family home on the site. So we are excited to share with you what we have today. Um, the plan before you today does reflect substantial changes um, from what we um, had initially based on the feedback we've received during the process from the town of Chevy Chase and the park and planning staff. Here are just some initial images of um, another project the gallery has showing some of the interiors just to show you the quality. But I'll start here with the plan. Uh, the biggest thing that's been mentioned is we have committed to preserving the majority of the existing forest that surrounds the property, which is um, somewhere between 80 and 145 feet average in most points. We've also restricted vehicular access to the points as described along Connecticut Avenue, and we will continue to work with SHA and DOT on the final design of this intersection to ensure a safe and efficient vehicular access. And then lastly, the project has been designed to open up to the community. This is important to the owner and to the community to have that interaction. And so there will be walking trails and retail, um, small neighborhood serving retail, um, connecting community to this new development. Here you can see an overlay. The light blue represents our proposed footprints over the existing aerial. And you can see we are largely staying within the existing hardscape zones and preserving that tree canopy. And then obviously height was a very large consideration during this process. And so you can see here how we have stepped down the development height along all of the edges in the light green here um, to help um, make that transition down to the existing neighborhood. And then one thing I did want to note is that although the park and planning staff noted it would be appropriate to increase the height after this um, reduction in height on the northern, western, and southern sides to perhaps increase the height on Connecticut Avenue to compensate from that loss in density. We did not consider this in respect to section three, which confronts the property on the other side of the 100 foot white, wide Connecticut Avenue right of way. So we did keep that four story height along Connecticut Avenue as so shown here in the height diagram. And here you can start to see a, a series of illustrations which help show how this design does nestle itself into the neighborhood. Um, for instance, the first one is along Connecticut Avenue. You can see we've broken down the, the building into two specific smaller buildings and then recessed the gatehouse in between to create a, an undulating facade along Connecticut Avenue. The southern one here is along Thornapple. Again, you see a series of smaller pieces of the building that project outward, creating a series of pavilions along that street and helping breaking down the scale and form of the building. <coughs> here you can see a section. Um, the top one is actually cut so the Connecticut Avenue is on your right. And then the western tree preservation is on the left. And you can see how the building, again, tapers down as it reaches the extents of the property. And then on the southern, uh, the, the, <laughs> the bottom of the sheet, <laughs> the southern part of the page, um, there is, again, a section there showing thorn apple on the left-hand side. And then this southern property is on the right. And again, that, that terracing of the reforms and building scales to help bring down the massing of the building. Here is a section through Connecticut Avenue showing the 100-foot right-of-way. And just important to note that we have recessed our building. We have a greater setback on the, our side of the street than that exists currently on the eastern side of the street. And then here is a series of views um, looking along Connecticut Avenue. Again, these are all very preliminary, but the idea of breaking down the forum massing with a series of chimneys, dormers, bays, gables, elements found throughout the neighborhood to help ensure that this building fits in the neighborhood when it is visible, which during the more southern summer 
months, um, again, because of the tree preservation, will largely be um, obscured. Here's looking south on Connecticut Avenue, same concept. You can see the gables, the bays, dormers, individual uh, elements that help break down the scale and form. And then again, because of that large tree preservation zone, largely obscured in the warmer months. We were very thoughtful throughout this process to make sure that the materiality, the architectural style, the detailing, and all of those things, as you see here on the screen, would complement the beautiful <coughs> homes that are in the surrounding neighborhood. So you can see here the stone, the slate, brickwork, um, bays, uh, again, traditional forms found throughout the neighborhood, helping to ensure that this is a, a, a pleasant place um, to add to the community. And then lastly, I just wanted to reiterate that this is just the first step in the process, and we will be, of course, coming back to you all um, to the board for preliminary and site plan approval, where the design and the details will be flushed out. So this is just an initial start of the conversation. Thank you. Great. I have just a few concluding remarks. Um, I just wanted to uh, reiterate again that the applicant is very pleased that we're able to redevelop this longstanding institutional use with a use that is um, both compatible with the surrounding neighborhood, but also implements many of the goals and recommendations of the master plan. The master plan placed a significant emphasis on providing services and housing to support the needs of the elderly, and that's exactly what this project does. Um, but by providing various unit sizes and layouts with three different levels of care to serve residents and allow them to age in place um, within their community. We agree with the findings as set forth in the staff report and the binding elements um, and agree with staff's recommendation that the local map amendment meets all of the recommendations or requirements of the zoning ordinance that the district council can make in approving it, and that the forest conservation plan also similarly meets the requirements of the code. Um, we didn't have the benefit of uh, the specific uh, changes to the binding elements that the town and section three have asked us to make uh, ahead of this presentation, so I think we can collectively respond to those. I'll, I'll respond to a few of them and then turn it over to Grant uh, to provide some additional response. Um, I believe we are okay with adding a reference to Southern in the binding element um, about the forest conservation plant, uh, forest conservation easement. There's only a small portion of forest on the Southern property boundary, but it, that condition references the um, forest shown on the plan, so we are okay with that. Um, I would defer to Grant regarding adding the specific uh, feet of height in the binding element. I think we're generally okay with doing that as it's shown on the plans as well. We plan to um, adhere to those heights. Regarding Section 3's request um, to amend the binding elements, as you heard from Grant and also from staff, the applicant has made significant efforts to engage the community, both town residents, Section 3, and others, and we will continue to do so as we move forward in the process. Um, we would respectfully disagree with amending those binding elements to specifically note Section 3 in them, only because um, of the, you know, a lot of those are kind of formally deferred either to SHA or Park and Planning. There's a concern with having kind of too many cooks in the kitchen in the formal binding element, but we certainly are committed to continuing to engage with them and provide them that information, and there certainly will be an opportunity for them to formally participate in the preliminary and site plan process um, and we're committed to doing so and providing that information to them. I, there was another uh, request by the town to amend um, the lighting condition to reference exterior lighting instead of site lighting. I think that is fine with us. It's in conformance with the code. 
that's an easy change. Um, and regarding the timing of the parking uh, study and the vehicular access study, um, we certainly can have those in advance of the preliminary and site plan. Um, it, I would also just note for the record that, you know, that is at least a four-month review process for the preliminary and site plan, so there's going to be substantial time for everyone to formally engage in the findings of those studies, but we certainly can have them done in advance of filing those applications. I think, I think that's all of them. If I missed any, um, I'm happy to respond to them. Okay. Thank you. Um, so, I'm sorry to just, I think we wanted to chime in on a, on a couple of the points that we're talking about for the binding elements. Um, and I'll, I'll start with, with the height and then Saquon can talk about the, the trees. I think one of the challenges with getting overly specific on binding elements is that if they go to build and they are six inches over that number, they are out of conformance with the binding element. The planning board cannot amend a binding element. DPS cannot amend a binding element. The county council would have to amend that binding element. So I think staff is comfortable with leaving it as it is. I think if the board is persuaded that more specificity is <coughs> of use here, we would suggest going to the next higher five foot increment so that there's some allowance for human frailty. Um, and then with that, I will turn it over to Saquon to talk about the trees. Uh, staff agrees with adding the word southern to the binding element. It was left off partially because the full southern boundary is not within the forest conservation easement because the, the stand ends. Um, adding that word southern can accommodate for the small portion that is, that is within the easement. So it's just te technicality, which we're okay with adding within the language. Thank you for that. Uh, uh, before the other boards have questions and comments, I just have to say this. Um, uh, I dealt with local map amendments for about 17 years up at council. I have never seen binding elements like this before. Um, typically, you get binding elements that deal with building standards, and then you have a section that says, when a site plan occurs, the following will, must be considered or provided for, one of the two. Um, this has 21 binding elements, um, and the applicant submitted these binding elements as, as provided for in the zoning code? A, a large portion of them we submitted based on our discussions with the town and other community <laughs> residents to address concerns. And and the applicant is content with with all of the uh, binding elements uh, with the possible few amendments? Yes, we are. I, I do uh, appreciate uh, Mr. Heisel McCoy's comments regarding the specificity of adding the height just in terms of our intent is to meet that height limit. But you're right, even if we exceed that by an inch, we're back to the council. So um, I think that's a good suggestion. I, I am. I am not inclined to find defeat in the jaws of victory. Um, so I, I won't make uh, the motion to really restrict this to those things that are relevant to zoning. There are so many things here that are really relevant to site plan and not to zoning. Uh, and I think it will be a little bit remarkable for the council and the hearing examiner uh, to deal with such things as vinyl siding on whether something should be zoned uh, one way or the other. Uh, 
but that will, if, if you're agreeable to this, and the town is agreeable to this, uh, it, it's hard to interject in that, except for the uh, questioning you may get at hearing examiner and the full council. But uh, I guess I'm giving that as a, as a fair warning, and I'll turn it over to commissioners for comments or questions. Or a motion. <laughs> I, you know, I'm glad that the applicant uh, has agreed to one of the conditions that the um, Mr. Rubin and the town and the village, the Section Three, which is that they're very concerned about the traffic and the parking. Uh, I think that that is really important. Uh, I mean, we know that Connecticut Avenue is very congested, and um, and uh, we don't want to generate. Uh, more traffic. I'm glad that, in a way, you know, you're doing independent and uh, assisted and mental care. Uh, I, I suspect that that's not going to generate as much traffic uh, or parking. Although um, they did mention that, you know, some of the some of the um, 190 may may have uh, people that come in. You know, I need to park to to help out. Um, so, you know, I don't know how much parking you're envisioning, but um, hopefully, you know, it's one of the least um, impacted in terms of traffic, uh, you know, this kind of development. So I would just say that in terms of the building height, I would go, I would support what Mr. Chair was saying. This is just a, a floating zone, uh, uh, and it's not a site plan or a final uh, you know, preliminary plan, so we're looking forward. Let me ask about the commercial retail. Is that something that you're envisioning that's going to serve the residents of this area, or are you going to open it up for people from outside? What What is your vision for the commercial sure. retail? Um, we, we have we have considered them mostly shops, if if you will, and uh, and we've we've committed to uh, you know ice cream store, uh, florist. Um, very small cafe. These are really intended to be, um, you know, a bridge between the residents of Corso Chevy Chase and the residents of the surrounding community. One of the things that makes uh, a Corso property magnificent is the ability for the residents of the community to interact with those uh, around them. And they've done this in other projects that they, they've had, and residents come down from the inside through this, um, to these shops, and uh, people from the community come from the other side, and that interaction really pr promotes health and dignity and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a way of life that isn't end of life, but continuing life. And so those are the types of things that we, we see there. They are not destinations. Um, they are, if anything, something that residents of the town can and the community can walk to, but also interact with the people that are at. at I see. So it, it would be mostly people walking to those uh, yes. retail commercial. Yeah. Uh, nothing big. And no. uh, in terms of, have do have you thought about any like a bus stop uh, for the residents, with the independent ones? There, uh, there is, is a there is a bus stop right, right out there. front. Okay, right in front. Yeah. And I guess we don't have a need for a bike path in on Connecticut Avenue, is there? Have we, do we have that in plans? How is, how is this development going to affect the future bike path? 
So I think that there are plans for, and Katie and Karini, uh, our transportation planners in the back of the room, you can wave her arms if I'm saying the wrong thing. I, I think there's intended to be a, sh what at one point was called a shared use path. Yeah. Um, on Alongside the sidewalk on Connecticut Avenue. Katie will, will correct my. I mean, this, the thing is that it's very narrow there. Yes. You know, it was, it was built in a different time. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Hi, Katie Mencarini for the record. Um, so I'm the transportation reviewer for Down County. I look at all of our, our projects and, and help coordinate with the other um, reviewing agencies such as MCDOT and SHA. So um, to get to your point, your concern was the existing sidewalk that's on Connecticut Avenue yeah. right now. Yeah, that is unacceptable. <laughs> so w this is a, a site plan issue, so I'm just going to put a pin in that, but I'm happy to talk more about it because... I love this stuff. Um, yeah. So per the Complete Streets Design Guide, they are going to be subject to that at preliminary and site plan. Okay. This is going to be a frontage improvement that they're going to have to address both on their Connecticut Avenue front, um, frontage as well as Thornapple. Um, Thornapple, you didn't ask, so I won't jump in on that too far. Um, but what's recommended in the Complete Streets Design Guide is exactly what you said. It is not only far too narrow of a pathway, especially mm -hmm. for our ADA concerns, but also the buffer is insufficient, right? Like there's a lot of high moving, or sorry, fast moving volume of traffic that's on the road. Yeah. We've already discussed it with them, and they are—they seem amenable to what is required in the Complete Streets Design Guide, which is going to be an eight-foot buffer, and then an sorry, an eleven-foot buffer, and an eight-foot side path that could be used for bicyclists or pedestrians, and will also be accessible for anyone with mobility challenges. So it's a very big, important priority for us, and we've gotten sign-off from SHA as well. Okay, thank you. Cheers. Any other board members on anything? So, so we're. Um, I have some questions. Please. Um, during this phase of the application process, is there any consideration given to the setbacks and/or street trees that line Connecticut Avenue? When I was looking at the overlay, um, there's going to be an increase in the um, building footprint and the setbacks. There's no setback with regards to Connecticut Avenue. And me driving down Connecticut Avenue just last week to go to American University, um, one of the, the key features of Connecticut Avenue are the street trees. And I know um, members of the county council and the county executive are really concerned about preserving the appearance in Montgomery County and especially the street trees that have a, a long legacy within our county. And I was wondering if that's part of the application consideration process. Thanks. Absolutely. So um, certainly with the LMA, that isn't our first, but, but by the way, the LMA is a really great exercise to flag a bunch of things that we want to look at. And we've already started having these conversations. Um, I'm also going to note over here, Marco Fuster is our um, environmental planner on this. But from a transportation perspective, you're totally right. We want, if we have mature, thriving trees, we don't want to discard those, right? Because you can't really replace those easily. So we have been looking out to see the health of the trees that are out there today, and we flag the ones that we want to be saved. And then there are some trees that are not in great health. Those probably will be replaced. Um, but increasing that buffer width is going to give them more room to thrive and more soil depth and more um, opportunity to continue to create that canopy that we really value for safety, comfort, and just an overall urban design look that we're going for. I thought I read there was a 18-foot setback from Oh, from yes. The <laughs> also that. <laughs> okay. Do, do you want to get in? Oh, sorry. And, and what I see on the diagram that, that we have up on our screens is that four saved mature trees along Connecticut Avenue. 
-hmm. And uh, in your illustrations, uh, I also saw those trees saved, uh, <clears throat> which I noted directly to make sure that they were then saved on the Forest Conservation Fund. Um, and, and also from building face to curb, it's about 40, it's over 40 feet. From, from building on Connecticut Avenue, building, so even though this, the numerical setback is 18, I think from building face to curb on Connecticut Avenue is 44 feet. Right, because it's taken into account right of way as well as the, yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, so oh, to the curb. Okay, right. and, and that is more than what's on uh, Chevy Chase 3? Correct. So we have uh, so the um, total width of the right of way. They are going to be required to dedicate the full master plan width. The opposite side of the street has not dedicated the full right of way width. I'm sure it changed after you know those houses were built. So they are going to be achieving the full from the center line that they're supposed to. So they're actually going to have a deeper or a wider right of way, which sets their property line back further than it is on the other side. Does that make sense? Yeah, we did get th that testimony uh, in written form on the setbacks from Chevy Chase 3. Uh, 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 Commissioner Pedowin, I got to get used to this, I'm sorry. Uh, just a question for you that if you consider the, you know, uh, incorporation of the sidewalk and walkways later on, is it going to have any impact in the preliminary forest conservation plan that uh, we are reviewing and it could change some of these binding requirements? So, so no, we can be more restrictive. Like we, so the binding elements are the binding elements. We got to focus on those. Um, but then uh, from there, that's where we we look at, and that's why we're we're looking at it all now. But we're not conditioning all of it right now. So so far, everything's working. Also, just so that you know, um, Marco, Saquon, and I all work very closely together, so that we're not giving them conflicting conditions of approval. We'll work it out together. But I appreciate your your insight on that. No other questions. I'm amazed. Uh, I'm uh, uh, I'm still trying to figure out all of the um, amendments that staff would now recommend to us after this uh, hearing. Is somebody going to mark something up here? So I think you, uh, I, Commissioner. I, Bar Commissioner, oh no, if yeah, you'd like I'm them to answer your question. Yeah, I want I want them to answer. My Go ahead, and then I, I have a second. Oh, okay. So I think to answer the question, the two changes, um, so I think we're... Pick a number, please. We're so supportive can... of adding the word southern to binding element to the relevant binding element. Uh, and then for height, I think w we will defer to the board if they want to add additional building heights, I think staff is comfortable not adding the building heights because it's on the development plan. We'll be getting it at site plan. If the board does want to, we want to use the, the five foot increments. I think there was a suggestion from uh, section three to modify binding element two to include section three in the review of the, the traffic. Um, studies, I, I, the staff would recommend instead of putting them together with the town, because this uh, site is located within the jurisdiction of the town, they have, I think, a, a unique role. I think we, we always uh, coordinate with um, all stakeholders, including municipalities, if the board wanted to add another sentence that, you know, the the there should be coordination with, and we can 
we'll pull the, the language, the specific language together. But if we wanted to recognize section three in that, I think we would add another sentence that talked about coordination because they won't have a jurisdictional role. So I think that's the decision we would make. And I think those are the three changes that we are talking about. You were okay with exterior lighting on condition 12 too, I thought. Uh, yeah, I, to, us, to us they're the same, but I think that that's fine. Oh, talk to him, right. <laughs> that I understand. All right, so please, Commissioner Bartley. I'd like to thank um, Vice Mayor Rubin and Ms. Harney for your comments and your coordinated efforts with regards to the need for a traffic study and making sure that the community is well taken care of. Um, so I, I, I appreciate your participation and comments. Thanks. There was one other uh, interest, which, which was to have the, the traffics and parking studies in advance of the preliminary plan. So I, I think right now it says at preliminary plan, if we wanted to change that to before preliminary plan. Do you want to say that's four fine. weeks before preliminary no. plan? No. You know. I mean, again, because if it's, if they're, you know, three weeks, six days, they're in violation of the binding element, I think, I, I think before is... Sufficient, and I think as the applicant suggests, you know, this is a four-week. The review itself is four weeks, and we right. do a lot of pre-work before that. So it's uh, four week, four month. Oh, only four weeks. I shouldn't say that. Six months. So there'll be plenty of time. Am I capable of seeing the the vice uh, mayor nodding to that to agree to that? Why don't you come up and speak to it, please? If this is going to be a marriage, we have to have everybody up here. I was, I was feeling excluded a little bit there, but uh, we're in the hybrid work world right now. So, um, I think the, uh, the one question we'll probably have to follow up is, is the five-foot increment in that it may exceed our, our um, actual uh, limits at the town. So we, we just need to figured that out rather than five it might be one foot or two feet I'm not sure but I mean I think it, that it, could be it would still I mean the over the the I think we're at 70 feet in the zone so you know 47 feet in the northwest corner would be 50 feet 53 8 would be 55 feet you know 66 4 would still be 70 feet um, you know 44 6 would be 50 feet so I, I mean, we're we're still within the seventy feet of the of the code. It's just, you know, I'm trying to be thoughtful. Sounds good. I'll let it go. <laughs> you're you're the uh, but yeah. No, I just want to make sure we we cross the T's. I mean, we're not going to disagree with the principle of it. Though. Yeah, I, I mean, I think issue. that's a much better idea than yeah. having a height violation for six inches. Don't want to go to. And the the is the I'm not going to the county council to have to revise things. <laughs> and, and trust me, you're, this is going to get reviewed by the hearing examiners before you get to council, too, because it is different. It, the applicant is okay with the five-foot increments? Okay. All right. Um, I'll, I'll entertain a motion to uh, approve uh, the binding elements as amendment. We're going to do this in two sections. There are two, two decisions the board has to make. One is on the LMA guidance that we send up to the council, and the other is the forest conservation plan. 
So I'll entertain a motion on the local map amendment. All right, I'd move to we approve the local map amendment with the, uh, the edits we've discussed so far. Do I hear any further discussion? I second that. Oh, that's right. I need a second. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> this is a bad day. Um, uh, any further discussion? And, and the staff is clear on the amendments we're proposing. The, the uh, applicant is clear on the amendments we're proposing. The town is clear on the amendment. Both towns are clear on the amendments. And, and that would include uh, Chevy Chase 3 uh, uh, coordination. Okay. All right. Uh, it includes the traffic and parking. Uh, traffic before. Before. Okay. With, with that, uh, all those in favor say aye. 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 And I'm saying, I, I'm only painful about it because it's so different than what I'm used to on, on binding elements. Uh, you, you know, I hope everybody is content with um, the binding elements you get because sometimes you have to live with what you ask for. Um, and, and this is unusual to have this much detail when you go for zoning. But uh, I appreciate that there is peace in the world and in particular in Chevy Chases. Okay, uh, I didn't see any opposed? No. Okay, uh, I'll entertain a motion to, uh, uh, to approve the preliminary forest conservation plan. Mr. Chair, I uh, move that we approve the preliminary forest conservation plan as it stands, as it's recommended by the staff. I'll entertain a second. I second that. Okay, and uh, did we did we have some outstanding issue with um, Is there any room for discussion? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, in losing 0.74 acres, it was on, on my list of questions, and I, I just overlooked it. But in losing 0.74. Um, acres of forest. We know once the forest is lost, it's never coming back. Um, was there any consideration given to um, lease um, destructive measures in preserving that um, portion of the forest? And if so, um, what considerations were given? That was my question. Staff on the, on the forest conservation. One note of clarification in the staff report. Any forest not declared as protected is, law, is declared as removed or uh, disturbed. So that 0.74 is encompassing forests that will remain, but just outside the easement as well. So I wanted to add that uh, for the record. And I think that 0.74 was not part of the conservation easement, right? Correct. Okay. But what I was asking is what consideration or what efforts were made to avoid losing that 0.74, if any? Right. Well, um, I would let the applicant address this as well, but I'll, throughout the review process, our environmental planner worked with the applicant to revise building restriction lines and limits of disturbance to tighten up as much as possible. Um, there were some areas where encroachment and removal of forests was necessary to accommodate all the utilities and buildings associated with the development. Um, so I'll let that stand and um, pass it off to the applicant. I think Mr. Gatling did a great job explaining that. I think there was also um, some coordination with Marco Fuster regarding making sure that the forest conservation easement boundaries were easily delineable. And so, you know, that included not a lot of 
zigs and zags, but kind of more some straight lines, and that's also what contributed to portions of the forest not being within the easement, but still being preserved. They're not, it's not contiguous, it's just small portions of the forest. I mean, what I mean is, when I'm looking at the map here, um, is it one specific section or there are multiple sections of the forest that are being removed? Keely Laredi with Soltes for the record. Um, we have a large portion, um, as was just mentioned, of, of trees being saved along Thornapple that are just counted as removed because we are providing dedication for uh, an upgraded sidewalk along that street. So in terms of the 0.74, not all of it is being actually removed. It's just not being counted as saved. So there's a large area there. We also have to, um, a lot, most of the remaining area is for utility connections. There's a southwestern connection that already exists. So we're having to, um, even in, in, in that area as well, there's a lot of um, existing easement encroachments on that southwestern side. Um, from the adjacent properties, all of that area is being saved, but has to be counted as, as um, removed because it's not, um, doesn't meet the criteria of a category one conservation easement. So, um, you know, and then there were a couple areas that I think uh, maybe there were, there was inv some invasives in there, um, different areas that, you know, uh, that we couldn't count everything towards conservation one. So for, for the most part, um, we tried to preserve as all of the existing um, forest on the on the boundaries, and there were just a couple areas where we had to clear for utility um, reasons and for dedication. Yes. Well, the motivation for my question was it's a, a historic site in that it was 4-H, not not for historic preservation, but just the trees. And um, the idea that some of them would be removed rather than preserved was just a, a, a curiosity of mine. That's all. Thanks. Commissioner Roberto? Oh, no, I Roberto? made a motion. Well, oh, and you I made, think oh, that's it was right. seconded. That, you uh, did. So we probably can take a vote. We, we can. I, I just want to go. Yeah, we can go. We can do it in a second. I just wanted to go back a second on the LMA on, on the cover letter that I'll deliver. I, I would like in that. and want to know to let the board know. Uh, I, I really want to emphasize the, the, uh, the fact that the developer proposed the binding elements uh, going forward as provided for in a zoning ordinance. And uh, staff somewhat um, amended that with the, still the agreement of, of the applicant. Be, because otherwise, it just seems way out of line to me. Uh, I, I, yeah. Look, I'm an old school. Um, you know, I, I'm used to one process at a time and, and doing with the conditions of that process. I'm trying my best not to object <laughs> to, <laughs> to something that's uh, 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 in agreement with everybody. So, uh, but I just want to let everybody know I'll do that in the cover memo. The, yeah. the amendment says the way the what the council proved. All right. With that, we're ready for a vote. If I could just interject for one moment, uh, Allie Myers, Office of General Counsel, for the record. I wanted to confirm that the motion for the preliminary forest conservation plan included um, staff's proposed amended condition language. 
that they presented oh, that's during. Right. You did. I, I think the condition was the. I think there the binding element language. Uh, I believe there was one for the preliminary forest conservation plan. Oh, preliminary forest conservation. Was it, it number two? It, yes, condition yes. Number, okay. two. number two. Thank you for that. Nice save. <laughs> That's why they keep us around, you know. <laughs> uh, can uh, the motion be amended to incorporate the the change recommended? Uh, I guess it's by the applicant recommended this. No, we recommended it. We recommended it. They recommended. The applicant. Yes. All right. What did, yeah. Whoever recommended it. Yeah. It's recommended. Okay, Mr. Chair, I'd like to recommend that we accept the amendment recommended by the applicant uh, as part of the, um, the 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 move to accept it. All right, and the second accepts the amendment. I second. Okay. Um, all right. I think we're ready. All those in favor, say aye. Aye. As amended. Aye. Okay. Aye. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. I'm sure Thank this was much. a very long process. Congratulations. Uh, look forward to a great contribution to the county. Thank you so much. All right. Uh, with, with, with that, uh, we are in recess uh, until we have to come back at 1.15, right? We can't come back early. Okay.
Welcome to the afternoon session of the Planning Board. It is uh, March 9th, uh, 2023. We are on item six. Uh, this is 4824 Edgemore Preliminary Plan Amendment 1-2020-007A uh, and Site Plan 8-2021-004A. Uh, it's a public hearing. Do I have people? Um, there, yes, there are speakers for this ultimately. Um, uh, first, I'll, I'll hear from staff to present. Uh, then we'll hear from our speakers. Then we'll hear from the applicant, if that's okay. All right, please proceed. Good afternoon. For the record, Saquon Gatling with Down County presenting 4824 Edgemore, which includes preliminary plan amendment 1-2020-007A and site plan amendment number 8-2021-004A. For the board's reference, the original site plan was approved by the board in March of 2021, and the original preliminary plan was approved with the sketch plan in 2020. Just a brief overview for today. The as a reminder, the, board, the applications before you are amendments to previously approved plans, a preliminary plan and a site plan. A preliminary plan seeks subdivision approval per section 50.4, which includes review of whether public facilities such as schools and roads are adequate to serve the development, while the site plan seeks approval per section 59.7.3.4 and includes a detailed overview of the proposed development as it relates to the requirements of the zoning ordinance. These approvals can, of course, be amended. The amended findings and proposal are addressed in the staff report and are the focus of today's presentation. The 0.2 acre property is zoned CR 2.5, C 0.5, R 2.5 with a height of 120 feet and is within the Bethesda overlay zone. The property is located on the southwest side of Edgemore Lane and Woodmont Avenue's intersection in the Arlington Road District of downtown Bethesda. And as you can see on the slide, it's about a block away from the Bethesda Metro Station. As mentioned, the project is within the Bethesda Overlay Zone, also known as the BAS. General information about the zone is shown on the, on the screen. The BAS was created to implement sector plan recommendations related to density, building design, affordable housing, and parks. And the Overlay Zone provides a pool of density that proposals can draw from to increase density of a proposed project to a level beyond what's allowed in the underlying zone. To use BAS density, a proposal must use all the density of the underlying zone and make a park impact payment, which is calculated based on the quantity of the BAS density requested. This additional, this additional density must be used within a time frame set forth by the zoning ordinance or the site plan is revoked. Brief overview of prior approvals to the right, you can see the building footprint that was previously approved. This amendment does not propose changing the size or massing of the approved building. And previously at the preliminary and sketch plan phase, the site was approved for the creation of one lot with up to 92,000 square feet and 77 multifamily dwelling units and bias density as shown 70, of about 70,000 square feet. The previous site plan refined these numbers and was approved for up to 89,000 square feet, including over 67,000 square feet of bias density for 76 units in a max height of 119 feet. In the proposed amendments, Neither height nor bus density are proposed to change. Today, the application is requesting an increased unit count for up to 111 dwelling units with the ability to provide up to 65 of these units as short-term residential rental units as described in Chapter 59. 
along with the proposed change in unit type, the applicant is proposing revised parking, which still maintains compliance with the requirements in the CR zone, as shown in the table included in the staff report. To accommodate the increased units, minor facade changes are proposed. This project was originally reviewed by the Bethesda Design Advisory Panel with previous applications, and with this amendment, the Design Advisory Panel was contacted, but due to the scope of the amendment, the project maintains compliance with the previously reviewed building design and form, and the panel did not require an additional round of formal review for this project, or for this amendment. Per the zoning ordinance and as conditioned in the staff report, there is a requirement to provide 15% of dwelling units as moderately priced dwelling units. This requirement is coordinated between the applicant and the Department of Housing and Community Affairs with enforcement provided by DHCA in accordance with Chapter 25A. With this amendment, the applicant is proposing a co-living leasing agreement, and this leasing term is not found within the zoning ordinance and is distinct from arrangements such as personal living quarters, which are defined in the zoning ordinance. During the review of this, during the course of this review, staff has coordinated with DHCA regarding MPDUs, and a representative from DHCA is present virtually to provide clarification on this if needed. Following coordination with DHCA to provide the required MPDUs, DHCA has recommended that the MPDU requirement be revisited following any change in the co-living designation for units within the building, such that 15% of all single-family households, household units are provided as MPDUs. Language to this effect has been incorporated as part of the conditions of approval. This next slide provides a bit of a background for two updates to the findings and conditions to the staff report. This application makes the use of BOS density, and as such, acceptance of a building permit for review by DPS is required within two years of site plan approval, which in this case would be from the date of the original site plan. However, this amendment proposes an increase in units, which results in a change to the interior of the building, which affects the building's core and shell. Therefore, the requirement for submission and acceptance of an, of an initial building permit, which must include core and shell, will be from the date of this amendment's approval. The requested bias density has not changed, thus the resulting park impact pavement has not changed. This leads to our first correction, which is to site plan condition three. Staff recommends the inclusion of the language shown on the screen to reflect that the timing for a building permit, which is based on the approval of the, is based on the approval of this amendment resolution rather than that of the original site plan. The second update staff recommends is reflecting the inclusion of the underlying sentence on the screen to the site plan finding 4A related to park impact payment. <laughs> since the approval of the original site plan, the park impact payment rate has gone up once. However, since the requested bus density has not changed, the previously approved park impact payment of $753,735 remains the same in accordance with previous condition of approval 5A. The, the applicant has met all property signage, noticing and submittal requirements. Correspondence received as the date of the staff report has been included in the attachment and is addressed within the report. <coughs> Additional correspondence following the posting of the staff report was also received and has been forwarded to the board for their consideration. The topics addressed in the correspondence generally relate to traffic and pedestrian safety, building design, unit type, and noticing. As it relates to traffic and building design as covered in the staff report, Building access has not changed with this amendment, and the building design and form was found to be within substantial conformance of the previously approved applications. 
Therefore, these elements are outside of the scope of the current amendment applications. Concerns related to unit type and noticing are addressed in detail in the staff report, and the applicant is here today prepared to address any further questions related to the proposed amendments. With that, staff finds that the preliminary plan and site plan amendments meet the requirements of the zoning ordinance and subdivision ordinance and is in conformance with the sector plan. All noticing requirements have been met, and staff recommends approval of each of the applications with the findings and conditions enumerated within the staff report and modified here and today. Thank you. Thank you for that. We have um, some speakers uh, who'd like to come up. Uh, I think uh, Neil Goldstein is here. Please come up. And uh, Penny Dash. You'll each have uh, three minutes to speak when you start. You, you can sit down if you wish and use the mic there. Oh, okay. All right. I if you apologize wish to. for that. Uh, hopefully, everybody can see. What I'd like to do is give a little background. I want to show a chart depicting the actual intersection that we're most concerned about. Please it's proceed. It's the intersection of Woodmont Avenue and Edgemore Lane. I'm going to have one hand to hold this. This, this is too wide. Uh, no, I'm going to write on it. Can everybody hear me without the mic? Uh, except our, uh, you have to use the mic for our online audience. Oh, that's my wife. I really have to use this. <laughs> okay. toward the chair. He'll, oh, he'll hold. No, no. <laughs> Not used to that kind of treatment. Thanks. Please use the mic. This is Woodmont Avenue. It's a street that curves and goes from Rockville Pike or uh, Wood, uh, Wisconsin Avenue to Wisconsin Avenue. It's been used considerably as a cut through for those people who want to stay off Wisconsin Avenue and headed south. So uh, these are people like uh, who work at NIH, who would work at Walter Reed, and so on. Then you have people coming from up county. What I want to demonstrate here is how this street gets used currently and what the amendment will do to traffic and safety at this intersection. So here we have Woodmont Avenue, and on this corner, this is Edgemore that comes across Woodmont Avenue. So with the amendment, we're changing from approximately 176 tenants or occupants of that building from 98 and uh, I've never seen an actual number from from the developer so these are a result of my own calculations based on 
the one bedrooms, the two bedrooms, the three, the four, and the studios, and so on. It's a minimum number because it's possible that we could put more big people in there. You know, if you have an overnight guest or a week-long guest, you know, who has a car and the like. So we've added approximately 80 or so cars. And there's, from according to the developer, they're not going to have garage spaces for everybody. So they're planning on a, a minimum of 45 parking spaces, and these other people are going to have to find parking elsewhere. The planning staff, uh, a board, has required that they provide a parking space off street for all those people who can't park there. So they will be going most likely to the Metropolitan Garage, which is just diagonally across. The Metropolitan Garage has two exits. One exit is up here, approximately. From the left. Okay. So one exit, they'll come out of this exit and come down Woodmont. They'll come out of the other exit, which is on Edgemore Lane, and make a left onto Woodmont. And that's even with the current situation, except for the fact that we're going to see 80 to 100 additional cars. We already begin to see some backups on Woodmont Avenue when the light changes, because you also have buses coming from the metro station and making the left lane. And in the morning, they run those accordion buses, which are about 80 feet in length. 80 feet in length. So when they make that turn onto Woodmont Avenue, they make that left turn, they take up a lot of space. It's not unusual that we see backups from the traffic light on North Lane Thank you for your testimony. My time up? Yeah, about a minute ago, two minutes ago. Okay, I didn't make any of the points that I wanted to make. Can you summarize them quickly, please? Yes. Uh, my point is that with the additional occupants, uh, we will have chaos on that intersection and very dangerous as well because As you can see from the developer's photos, when they come out of their garage, they have no line of sight to the cars turning right from Edgemore. Absolutely none, because they're building up to the property line. Thank you. Um, now I have to look who's there. Uh, um, Ms. Dash? The board should not permit utilization. Is your mic on? What? Is that mic on? Okay. You can't hear? Now I can. Okay, I have to look closer. I have to stand so I can see everybody. <laughs> the board should not permit utilization of prime real estate across from the metro for the transient, out-of-town, short-term renters. I call them hotel guests without daily fresh linens. This real estate should be for county residents 
to get people out of their cars and using the metro. So the request for short-term rentals as well as the adult dorm co-living arrangement should be denied. Our Chase Garage, and this is the diagram there, is immediately next to this development on Edgemore. Note that Edgemore is being reduced to a one-lane road due to a bicycle lane installation. So all drivers arriving by GPS to this new development, so that's Grubhub, that's Takeout Taxi, that's Lyft, what, and other deliveries, they're gonna arrive on Edgemore, the one lane, and then they're gonna stop, because they're gonna look for the lobby, where are their passengers to pick up to take to the airport, we, you know, or stop and bring food in just in the lobby. And this is gonna negatively impact the 282 drivers that park in the adjacent Chase Garage, who simply wanna exit the garage and merge onto Edgemore safely. As detailed in my written comments, the management loaning plan fails to address the GPS arriving car problem. Therefore, the address for this building should be changed to a Woodmont address to direct all GPS drivers to arrive by Woodmont, which has additional lanes to absorb any stopped car. I ask the board to require this as a condition that developer effectuates this address change. As a taxpayer, I'd like to see integrity restored to the development process for this development, integrity being a matter which should always be pending before the board. I'm referring to Acumen's use of the so-called oops tactic and the vanishing tower separation. Acumen told the design advisory panel one measure, 35.05 feet for the crucial tower separation distance between our buildings. But it's site plan, it said, oops, that's not right. It's really narrower, closer, smaller. Developers who misrepresent crucial data for the DAP, whether on purpose or through sloppy work, should not be rewarded as former Chair Anderson had done at site plan. Board should now require an average tower separation distance of 35.05 feet, which is what Acumen told the DAP was the actual tower separation distance. And that is what the DAP approved. Alternatively, the board should order Acumen to return to the DAP to own up to their mistake and seek DAP review of the lower tower separation distance, now down to to about one-third of what the DAP had originally expected, and I've explained that in my March 7th comments. Not requiring them to rectify their mistake on a crucial matter now encourages all developers to come forward at the last <coughs> minute with their own oops for board approval for items that were never intended to be acceptable. I ask that the board take this action to rectify the, rectify the undermining of the integrity of the development process by this developer in the matter of the vanishing tower separation. Thank you. Thank you for your testimony. We have um, someone on Teams, Jason Fabris, um, or is he uh, part of the owner presentation? Hi, how are you today? Okay. So. Thank you for this opportunity to speak before you today. My name is Jason Fabris. I am the president of the board of directors representing the Condo Association of the Chase at Bethesda. 
I'm here today to express our board's unanimous opposition to the proposed plan amendment at 4824 Edgemore Lane. We realize that the county wants this property developed and we understand it will be. However, we feel it is the duty of this planning board to make sure it is developed responsibly and with the following concerns taken into consideration. The traffic on Woodmont Avenue and Edgemore Lane at the intersection of this proposed plans has become a danger to pedestrians. This corner cannot tolerate any more vehicular traffic. For those of us who live here and walk this block daily, we are aware of how vigilant we must be when crossing the intersections and driveways around our home block. The no bright turn on red sign from Edgemore Lane onto Woodmont Avenue means traffic currently backs up past our garage entrance and exit, blocking access and egress into and out of our parking garage. This has been an issue for years, but it has been exacerbated by the increased density since the edge was completed. For reference, the edge is an additional building added to the Edgemore Apartments directly across the proposed project and our garage on Edgemore Lane. Drivers traveling east on Edgemore Lane regularly enter the left lane when approaching Woodmont Avenue and turn right on red in front of cars in the right lane, observing the no turn on red sign. This is directly in front of the proposed project at 4824 property. Additionally, cars illegally park up and down both sides of Edgemore Lane, and for some reason, the county refuses to adequately patrol the street. It is not uncommon to see six or more cars parked on both sides of the street at a time. The illegally parked cars consist of food and package deliveries, commercial vehicles, and even friends and loved ones waiting to pick up Metro riders from the Bethesda Metro stop across Woodmont. They wait there parked and blocking lanes in each direction during rush hour. The edge apartments regularly leave multiple dumpsters in the street for daily pickup due to the lack of accessibility by large trucks to their building. And car dealerships have even begun to park their large semis that, that deliver new vehicles there while they offload the cars. The county's tolerance for parking on Edgemore Lane, despite the prohibition on parking there, aggravates the problem and blocks sight lines, adding to the danger for more vehicular pedestrian accidents. The planned addition of bike lanes at this intersection will only increase the congestion and, with the elimination of lanes on Edgemore, will introduce additional hazards once completed. In addition to these issues, and because of the lack of adequate guest parking at neighboring buildings in the area, our property experiences daily issues with vehicles parking in and blocking our loading dock, resulting in skipped trash pickups and our own refused deliveries. We have vehicles parking in our front turnaround and delivering packages up and down the street. We have vehicles parking in our small guest lot and walking off. And we have vehicles parking in front of, our, of and blocking our garage doors while they deliver food to residents at the Edge and Edgemore apartments across the street. This driveway into and out of our garage is within feet of the proposed project at 4824 Edgemore Lane. And the amended 4824 project has no plans for off-street delivery or drop-off parking. Where will delivery drivers park when they visit one of the 111 units at this new property? The new bike lane on our property? Our garage and driveway on Edgemore Lane houses almost 300 cars. Given the current conditions, everyone can imagine the frustrations our residents face being stuck in, in a queue and blocked from entering or exiting our building in a safe and timely manner due to the already over-congested and unsafe traffic patterns on this block. We can look to recent development projects to show us exactly what we can expect from another 111 units on the block without adequate off-street parking, driveway, or other pull-off for short-term deliveries and pickup or drop-offs of guests. The Edge, the already mentioned addition to Edgemore Apartments, was recently completed with across the street. It was approved and built with no designated guest parking lot or driveway. They even removed the existing Edgemore Apartments guest lot during the construction phase, adding to the violations of no parking rules for Edgemore Lane and the frustrating mess we now live with. We are getting to the point where because of the vehicular volume, lack of parking and subsequent parking violations, 
Efforts to protect pedestrians are doing the opposite and creating hazards for pedestrians. For these reasons, it is the unanimous opinion of our board of directors that this pro proposed amendment to the 4824 Edgemore Lane plan should be denied and the planning board should require adequate off-street parking and driveways for delivery and guests pickup and drop-offs at this and all future sites in this area. Thank you again for your time. Thank you very much for your testimony. Uh, there, are, there are no other speakers. If we can hear from the applicant, please. Nice to see you. In, nice to see in you. real person. Yes. You saw me virtually earlier. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, everyone. Pat Harris with Lurch, Early and Brewer. On behalf of the applicant, first of all, I want to welcome the three new uh, planning board members and thank you for your commitment to Montgomery County. Uh, with me is Sean Weingast, the general counsel and director of capital markets for the applicant Acumen, and our development team, including the architects from Bonstra Architects, Wade McKenney and Milan. Gilvich. Uh, we have our civil engineer, Pat LaVey, here from MHG, and then our traffic consultant, Nancy Randall, from Wells and Associates. Uh, I think giving a little bit of history here may be helpful. Uh, the sketch and preliminary plan for this project were approved back in 2020, and then in 2021, the site plan was approved for 76 condo units, luxury condo units. And the project, as underwritten at that time, assumed that the condo units would not have on-site NPDUs. And the reason for that was the condo price was going to be up to a million dollars, the condo fees were going to be about $600, therefore really out of reach for your typical NPDU qualifying resident. However, DHCA, after we had all our approvals, really had a pivot in their policy and determined that off-site MPDUs were not going to be allowed and that the MPDUs needed to be on site. The project at that point was not financially feasible because it had been underwritten with the assumption that the MPDUs were going to be off-site. So what that meant was the applicant had to take another look and think, okay, um, what is the appropriate development for this property? And after evaluating it, what they determined was that while keeping the exterior of the project exactly the, exactly the same as previously in terms of the height, the massing, um, very minor changes to the, the facades, and we can go through that, that. We have an exhibit that shows a side-by-side -side comparison. Um, that no, nothing on the exterior would change, but in terms of the interior, it made more sense to provide more multifamily units at this location. Um, in doing so, it provides needed housing at a metro station. Uh, and the, the, and it's really much more in line with the master plan recommendations. And by that, what I mean is that it's adding more units to the marketplace, which the master plan recommends. It provides diverse housing options. It increases the non-auto drive travel, uh, which is one of the recommendations of the master plan, and it promotes a constrained parking policy. In terms of the co-living, I think it's important to talk about what that, what that means. These are um, furnished apartments with individual rooms rented. It's uh, an, a product that's increasing in popularity, maybe not yet in Montgomery County, but in the District of Columbia, the company that we would likely, that the applicant likely would uh, commission with, their name is Common. They have uh, at least 10 projects in, in down in D.C., including DuPont Circle, Columbia Heights, uh, Mount Vernon Square. And the, the 
point of this product is to appeal to the young, the young professional, what uh, a group called the digital nomad, which I don't think that term existed five years ago, but it's the, you know, the young, um, younger uh, professional who is, um, can work either at home or is working in, in WeWork spaces and things like that. Or it also appeals to people like the researcher at NIH that is here for six months, maybe a year um, time. The application that's before you today is more responsive to the recommendations of the sector plan. Uh, it's more responsive to the project's location just a half a block from the metro station. It's more responsive to the county's regional the county and the region's overall housing issue and crisis, and perhaps most importantly, it's responsive to the county's affordable housing crisis. And I say that because now we will have 15% MPDUs on site, and plus we will have those co 22 co-living units, each of which has a, a monthly rental fee, which is well below, at least $400 below what an MPDU rate is. So you almost, those co-living units could be assumed to be almost an affordable housing bonus, but they're not counting against the otherwise required number of MPDUs. Um, the last thing I would say, and, and then I'm, we certainly can answer any questions you have, and we have our whole um, group of consultants here. I want to show two things in terms, to address some of the comments you heard about the congestion on Woodmont Avenue. One is, and I realize that this is just a snapshot in time, but yesterday at 8 o'clock in the morning on a Wednesday, so not a Monday or a Friday when traffic trips tend to be lower, um, I took a two-minute video of my, my tech assistant will help me. I took a two-minute video at 8 o'clock in the morning of what was happening at that intersection. Because we have tried to be responsive to what we've heard from the neighbors since this project began several years ago. Um, as you can see, so this is sitting, their entrance, as you can see on the video. We can't see the video oh, yet. Give us a minute. Oh. You must is be a digital connected? nomad. You're moving too fast for us. Oh. Should we do something different? Okay. There we go. So I won't bore you with the entire two minutes. I'll get, but sitting here at eight o'clock in the morning, their entrance is on the right hand side. And here comes, then the one car came out like after, within that two minute period. Makes a left. And then I turned the video, nothing else happened for another, until the two minutes had lapsed, but I sat there another three minutes and one other car left, left the parking garage. Um, so again, I think while no one wants, to, I mean, while, while a lot of people in general don't want to see development, I think the, the concerns expressed may be a little bit in, inflated. Um, the other thing I would show you is another picture from, oops, from 9 o'clock at night last night in um, going south on Woodmont Avenue. And it just, you can see, sorry, I don't know if we can turn that. You can see the level of congestion that was expressed. Again, only a point in time, and it was totally random. I happened to be coming home from a meeting at 9 o'clock last night. Um, the, the placement of the garage has not changed. 
It's exactly the same as it was previously. Um, and and that had been thoroughly vetted at the time of the preliminary plan previously, as well as the site plan. If you have other questions about the site line visions or anything else, we have our whole team of consultants here. And we'd be happy to answer any questions, but we encourage the planning board's approval of, the, of this amendment. Thank you. Can, can you address the, the claim of a change in the design of towers? Uh... There has been, let me, can you get one more exhibit? The only change to the exterior of the project since it was previously approved is two things. One is a little bit of window placement and a little bit of relocation of some of the balconies. So if you can, the exhibit in front of you, this is the north elevation. So on the left is what was previously approved. On the right is what we are proposing. The massing and the distance from the adjacent Chase building has not changed in any way, shape, or form since the DAP previously approved or recommended approval and when the planning board approved the site plan in 2021. So that's the north elevation. This is the east elevation. And I, I mean, and I, when you look at these, you realize why the DAP said, we don't need to see this again, because you really have to look very closely to even get a sense of what the change is. And then here is the south elevation. And then finally, this is the west elevation. So again, a little bit of window placement change, a little bit of relocation on the balconies, that's it. Massing height, setbacks all did not change at all. Okay. Uh, do, you, do you have, uh, are, are you suggesting that with regard to deliveries and drop-offs, there's no need for anything on-site? I, I am suggesting that. I would say that this is an issue that, and especially for the new planning board members, you will probably hear in connection with every urbanized development. Um, there was discussion, and I don't know where the county ever ended up on this, within the Bethesda downtown area of creating sort of loading zones, and one of those loading zones that they were contemplating was on the north side of Edgemore. Um, I don't know that there was ever a finalized plan for that. Um, there, are, there, is, there are two loading bays within the building, and our plan is to encourage those loading bays to be used. There will also be um, an on-site uh, person, staff person, 40 hours a week that, that can assist with any type of loading issues. Um, but certainly, you know, the, the urbanized objectives of bringing buildings up to the street um, is a little bit in, is, differs from trying to also provide on-site loading. The Chase was built back in the, I think, 80s. And so, you know, their design is very different. So back then, everyone wanted a, a sort of cul-de-sac type configuration in front of their front door. That's not how urban buildings are being built anymore in, in an urbanized environment. Okay, I have, I have, can I have staff answer questions re, regarding parking and, and drop-offs? Parking and drop-offs, got it. Okay, so Katie Mencarini for the record. 
Loading was a big thing that we were talking about with drop-offs. We This is a really important site given how um, the proximity it is to the metro station. So we're going to probably have um, demand for folks from within the building, but also there's going to be demand for people to get over to the metro station. Um, this is a unique site also because there are separated bike lanes on both of the frontages. So we had talked about, you know, what about having a lay-by? What about having some of these areas? But we actually create two additional conflict points when you put in a lay-by, and that's not good practice for an area like this. So instead, we worked with the applicant to make sure that the um, interior of the site where you have um, both a loading dock, but there's also a short-term parking space. And that is where um, residents are supposed to direct people, whether it's car sharing or whether it's Uber Eats or whatever it's going to be, to use that. It's just like when you when you order something and you put in the notes, like you should say, come to the door. This is where you're going to be. Um, as uh, Ms. Harris noted earlier, we also are requiring a loading management plan. That is not a code requirement. That's something that we've developed for the Bethesda area specifically, and we're starting to also bring this into Silver Spring to make sure that we're being very deliberate and thoughtful about how loading activities occur. So they had um, offered to have someone on staff and then also someone on demand when it's needed if it's outside of the typical hours. Um, that was something that both um, planning and MCDOT staff and they came to an agreement about. Um, so I think I think that addresses loading. Does that cover any further questions on that? I'm good. Okay, cool. All right, so let's talk about parking. So this site is located just outside the existing parking lot district boundary. However, it is within the bounds of what was recommended as part of the Bethesda a downtown district to expand that boundary. And part of the reason is because the metro station is within eyeline of the front door. Okay, per thank you, Saquon. Um, and then another thing to note too, as, as noted by Mr. Goldstein, there is a parking garage, a public parking garage, very close in proximity to this area. Um, and it has ample capacity to um, accommodate both residents but also visitors. Um, this is, as noted by Ms. Harris, this is in a parking constrained area. We are actually trying to keep parking as tight as possible. Um, they are meeting the minimum. And so we didn't have any concerns about meeting the demand for it. Uh, we also think that this is likely going to attract people who may or may not have a car, given, again, the proximity to the metro and the other bus lines that are nearby. So this is in, um, consistent with practices that we're seeing with other sites in the general vicinity, not only within um, this block, but also in Bethesda in general. Thank you. My pleasure. Do other commissioners have questions? I have. Oh, Commissioner Pinero. Yeah, were they required to do a transit study? No. Thank you for asking. This is a great question. So first of all, we do uh, what's called an adequate public facilities um, analysis at the preliminary plans. So we do it before this part. Um, and what we first do is we do look at what is the previous site and what are they proposing. And then if the delta is 50 or more net new person trips, they will have to do a transportation impact study. And that includes um, cars, bikes, pedestrians, bus. However, with one caveat, in 2020, um, the council adopted a new policy that says red policy areas do not need to do a motor vehicle adequacy test. So they'll still do pedestrian, bike, bus transit, and vision zero, but cars are not included in that. And there's a reason for that. The, one of the big ones is that in a red policy area, those are around metro stations and high transit areas, so it's also the purple line stations. Those are areas where you actually have other options besides driving, right? So way out in Alney, you may not have as many options, but here you've got the metro, you've got the bus, you can walk, you can bike. There are other ways to get around. Um, the second issue is that a lot of times, in order to make the math work, mm -hmm. you have to build wider and wider roads. And in urban areas, that's a, that's a competing interest for us, right? We want to keep the areas tight for pedestrians and bicyclists. I'm sorry I'm getting long-winded, but I think it's important information 
information to have. Um, the last thing that I'll say is in this case, we did review the numbers both with the previous site plan and with this new amendment, and they do not reach that 50-person threshold. So they didn't have to do anything at all, but even if they did, they wouldn't be studying for cars. Does that make sense? Yeah. Thank you. Now, my other question is the, I'm a little bit confused about this 111 units. Yes. I mean, 65 are short-term residential renters, and we're talking about 22 co-living units. Are those part of the 35 or there are additional? I mean, you have the, you have the uh, 65 plus the 22? So can, can I just clarify that the co-living yeah. is just for our purposes, it's a multifamily unit. It's a three-bedroom unit. It's a four-bedroom unit. Co-living is a leasing strategy. It's not a use in the planning uh, in so the it's zoning. it's not a short term. In the zoning code. So the co-living co is a marketing term for leasing. So okay. for our purposes, that's just another three- or four-bedroom unit. Okay. The, uh, there will be 111 multifamily dwelling units. Up to 65 of those can be used as short-term rentals. We included that because short-term rentals are a separate use in the zoning ordinance. It's a limited use. There are additional requirements that those 65 have to meet. So there's 111 total at any one time. No more than 65 of those can be used as short-term rental. But those units, again, are, if you walked by it, it would just be another multifamily unit. So unit 4F could be a short-term rental for two months and then just a regular rental for the next year. So it, it, it's a little confusing in the way it's set up, but there are 111 multifamily units and up to 65 can be used for this additional purpose. So in terms of the MPDU, you came up with 17, but it's not based on the oh. 111. Yes, it is. So, so we, had, we, we had a lot of discussions with yep. uh, the good folks at DHCA. Mm -hmm. And Chapter 25A, which is the, the, the code for MPDUs, has definitions of what counts as a dwelling unit and what doesn't. So the co-living, so a, a four-bedroom unit rented to people that are not in the same family, and yeah. I'm paraphrasing DHCA, um, and Maggie from DHCA is on the phone to give us chapter and verse. Um, if four people that aren't one Unrelated family use that unit, that's yeah. not a dwelling unit under chapter 25A. So that unit cannot be an MPDU. So DH, again, for our purposes, it's a four bedroom apartment unit done. Yeah. The applicant will work with DHCA for an agreement to build, and that agreement to build will address all the possible permutations of their compliance with the 15% MPDU requirements. So they will have to, at all times, have 15% of units meeting the definition of a multifamily dwelling unit under Chapter 25A okay. as MPDUs. If a unit does not meet that definition, it cannot be used as an MPDU. Thank you. Uh, Commissioner Pedomi. Um, so if it is not calculated under MPDU, what about the short term? And is there a time that the commissioners or the planning board would know uh, what would be included in the calculation of the 15% MPDU? So I, 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 
the idea is that the applicant would be able to essentially um, invoke this status at any time, as long as you don't go over the number, they can sort of turn it on and turn it off at their discretion without coming back to us. Um, we, I mean, we typically wouldn't, once the planning board approves a project and it's built, DHCA keeps track of uh, compliance with the MPDU requirements. Mm -hmm. we, we generally don't as a matter for any project. Well, the question that I have, it's just for our knowledge, it would be good that if we know that if you have a short term or if you have a co-ed living or different kind of term, uh, what could be included in MPDU or not? I, I just need to if, learn if that. that. I can answer that. Um, so yeah. the short term is included in the total calculation. Mm -hmm. Okay. So to answer your question. And then what... DHCA said to us is even though it's included in the total calculation, we want to make sure because it's hard for them to keep track that the actual units though are designated in those units that are long term. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that so, is a good yes. thing. Yes. That yes. helps us. That's a very good thing. The other question that I had maybe I asked Elsa in regard to the or maybe you in regard to the delivery of the material. Um, one of our property owners, she had a concern in regard to the address of the loading, and uh, she was requiring that maybe we could make it that they deliver it in the GPS when people put it in an area that it has more space for car. Is it a possibility or not? So the, uh, the planning department does uh, issue addresses, but the addresses are the, the addressing is done in coordination with the fire and rescue uh, folks. That's where the um, the the fire coordination yeah. it's not called that, but that's only name. The yeah. fire coordination room is so that when the fire trucks arrive, they know where to go. So that is what is going to determine the address. Okay. I think for deliveries, as Katie suggested, you know there are alternative solutions that we've explored with the original approval. That totally makes sense. And I understand that that's for the question. Uh, it, it is more important the fire rescue get there than the food. So. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> we agree. Uh, I would hope they wouldn't need to get there, but that's yeah, okay. Yeah, but at the time of emergency. <laughs> she has a question. I don't okay. Uh, Commissioner Barkley. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to, so I think we're clarified on the MPDUs, so there will be 17 no matter what the configuration of the 111 units is. That's, that was just my point of clarification. Whether they're short-term rentals or co-letting, there'll be 17 MPDUs. The other question I had was, so we've got an increase in bike parking places, is that correct? Can you describe as a both avid cyclist and the fact that this is at the corner of two bikes, uh, two bike lanes, uh, can you tell me a little bit about that and sort of what the, what the parking and options are going to be there for bike, bike parking? So if you know off top long-term bike parking mm -hmm. will be included within the facility within the building. Okay. Um, I believe it's on level. It's within the building itself. With, it's not, it's not within the external. Building. Okay. And then we will also have a short-term bike two or four on the outside. Okay. And as a avid cyclist, I understand your interest. <laughs> Curiosity, uh, if I'm ever down there. But that's really all for me. I wanted to clarify on the MPDs. Commissioner this is Maggie Gallagher from oh. DHCA. I just wanted to jump in to say that um, currently we're requiring 14 MPDUs since the co-living don't qualify as um, 
uh, a MPDU dwelling unit per Chapter 25A. Mm -hmm. um, but we are adding a clause that says if they do decide that, you know, the co-living isn't working out and they're going to flip them into um, just your typical rental units, um, then every, I believe it's four or five units that they flip will then trigger another MPDU to meet that um, percentage requirement. Okay, that's what I was trying to clarify was that since they're not they're not eligible to be MPDUs themselves because they're not technically dwelling units, but they are count. If they if they switch back and forth between usages, they will count towards the MPDU percentage. Correct. That's great. All right, thank Correct. you. Correct. Mr. Bartlett. Yes, I would like to thank um, community members Neil Goldstein, um, Jason Fabris, and Penny Dash for coming to express your concerns. Um, and it's important that we hear from you all. I was wondering if, um, and the attorney from Lurch Early in Peru, I didn't get your name. Oh, Patricia Harris, Pat Harris. Uh, Pat Harris. I was wondering if you and or your client made any outreach with the concerned community members to see if you could address and or bait the issues that they addressed here today. I know you went out and took video, but for me and for you as well, that wouldn't be evidence enough that their concerns mm -hmm. aren't genuine. And so I was wondering if there's been any community outreach with regards to the concerns that these current community members have brought up. And if you've done it, what have you done? So that's a good question. So in connection with the original site plan, we met with them several times, I would say four or five times, they actually formed a task force. Uh, Mr. Weinstein, Weintraub, sorry, participated in, participated in that. Um, and then at one point, and may, uh, Sean, maybe you wanna detail this a little bit, but at one point the, the communication stopped, but um, that was after, there was no more communication. And then this time around, um, their outreach was directly to staff, and unfortunately, they never reached out to us. I was only informed of their issues via getting emails, their, their emails from staff. So, I mean, they knew how to reach out to us, and they never made any overtures, which was disappointing to us given our gestures and participation the first time around. I have a question for staff. Um, Ms. Penny Dash pointed out a differential in the lower tower spacing. Is there any credence to that? And if, if you could contribute um, to our understanding with regards to that issue, it'd be great. Certainly, Thanks. thank you for the question. So um, with the original site plan review, uh, there was some discussion about um, the tower separation definition. Um, but the, the plan that is before you uh, is the plan, or the, the footprint that is before you is the one that the design advisory panel recommended met the design excellence requirements and is the building footprint that the planning board approved. So while at that time there was some discussion, it did not sway the design advisory panel or the planning board at the time to change the footprint. So the, the, the discussion she's mentioning was with the March 21 plan. So it, it's not relevant to today's amendment. 
I'm sorry, just what happened to the March 21 plan that got changed? No, so, so the, that d during the deliberation of the site plan application, Right. There is, uh, in the design guidelines, there's a tower separation, um, uh, there's a tower separation recommendation. And uh, this pro the DAP reviewed this project, I want to say two or three times over the course of its initial approval. And there was some question about uh, sort of tower separation, building face to building face versus where the property line falls. So as I recall, the property line is, can we, sh does this show the, the property line is not clear on this. It, it's close to one of the buildings and I can't remember which one. It looks like it's uh, adjacent, maybe it's close to the, to the chase. Also the, the, Ed, this building is face online and then the chase building would be the dark line to the south of it. If you pull up the previous image. So is the property line there where it says adjacent property transformers? There's a dashed line there. Is that the property line? Uh, it's, it's to the north of that. It's the dark line that has an annotation below it. Uh, if you move your cursor up, yeah, right there. That's the property line. So at, the, at that time, there was some question about uh, the, the relationship of the property line to the building or the building face to the building. That question was answered and settled by the previous design advisory panel, by the previous planning board. So that is not an open question for us today. Anyone else? Uh, I would mention just a, a, a couple of really technical things. Uh, Short-term rentals is, is something that's really going to be regulated by licensing. The requirements there are for essentially owner-occupied or uh, a resident designated there. Uh, and, and then having short-termers with that designated residence. You're prepared for all that? So I'm, I'm glad you asked that. In an effort to be totally transparent and knowing that the neighbors were focused on this project, we wanted to be fully transparent of what may be proposed. So we recognize that someone living here may decide, you know what, I'm going to Florida for two months and I'm going to rent out my unit 4F, to use Elsa's example of a unit. And um, they would be allowed to do that because they, the, they own that particular unit they're leaving and they're going to do a short-term rental for two months. The code allows that. Um, or if someone has a two-bedroom and they decide, you know what, I want to rent out my second bedroom to someone, they can do that. And we recognize, because it's a limited use within the CR zone, that requirement, that is part of the requirement. So we understand that. The approval allows for up to 65. There may be none. I mean, it's really going to be, could an individual, would an individual owner select to do that? So you're planning on being condominium, so each individual owner would... No, it's... I'm sorry, it's rental. But, you, it, but it says either... Um, rent. You can be a designated yes. renter, uh, but, but really a full-time occupant of that unit. Wow. I mean, uh, I mean, it really is a subsequent event that somebody has to qualify for. 
you, I you're not going I, I cannot see how you could qualify as the owner that said, I'm going to have 65 short-term renters because you need to be an occupant. I had a little bit to do with this section yes, of code. Yes, and I don't know, hold on, I don't know if I have the exact language of the limited use requirement in front of me. I think it's 333.1. And we did have some, so the, the Department of Permitting Services would be uh, enforcing um, this provision and we did have some, uh, some discussions with them and with the applicant and I think the applicant appreciates that they would need to meet this, they would need to meet the requirements in the zoning code in order to be able to have this use as conditioned. So I, I believe that's the bottom line. Right, is if that, the property owner or owner authorized resident so owner authorized resident. So a, le a contractual, if I'm renting a unit, I'm an owner authorized resident. I have a contractual relationship. I have a property interest in that unit. As long as they agree, I, I'm, I'm glad I'm not doing the licensing here. Um, I think uh, Commissioner Bartley has uh, another question first. Ms. Dash, you raised your hand. And I wasn't sure if you had an additional comment you wanted to add. Thanks. Briefly. I just want to clarify. The tower separation was approved at site plan, but my point was that it was based, the DAP did not approve the current site plan separation distance. But Chair, former Chair Anderson, when developer finally at site plan said, oh, we made a mistake before the DAP. It's really narrower than we had written and we got approval from the DAP. It's smaller. Chair Anderson said, oh, whatever, basically. And then he let it go through. So I was trying to make the point that a developer who makes a mistake before the DAP should not be rewarded with allowing this to go forward. It was decided at site plan, but it was still a faulty process at that time, and here we are again. So I wanted to bring to your attention that it's now narrower than what the DAP approved, and I wanted to know that you could do something about it to preserve integrity of the process. With respect to reaching out and having discussions, we had many discussions before site plan about the address change, and it seems to be a, such an easy thing that could be required to change the address to Woodmont address, I'm sure Ms. Harris could get the fire department on board and permitting services. They're already in flux in designing the lobby because they're moving the bicycle, the bicycles out of the lobby floor. They haven't finally decided the um, lobby layout. And wherever the fire department says they should have the fire access room, they could either keep it where it is or move it to Woodmont. I mean, it's not a burden on them to make this change, but it would alleviate the Edgemore problem. And it's great that there are a couple of minutes where there aren't cars on Edgemore, but yesterday there were five cars parked in front of no parking you know, signs on Edgemore. So it is a problem. And um, so those are the two things Thank that you. I wanted to say today. Uh, Thank I'm, you I'm, for giving me another opportunity. Thank you. Uh, I, I mean, we are in charge of addresses. <laughs> uh, does staff have an opinion 
on whether it should be I, on I, I, I'm not sure the planning board is in charge of resi residences. Planning staff is in charge of residences. It's the, it, it's the intake and regulatory coordination. Well, maybe we have some influence with staff here, or, uh, particularly if we put it as an approval of a site plan. I mean, I, I don't. I don't think we have a. Katie, do we have a particular? I don't think we have a particular perspective other than not wanting to tie the hands of the fire and rescue folks to, um, you know, to to put it where they, they think it needs to be for safety. Well, how about we ask staff to investigate that possibility? I mean, the, the addressing is done sort of at the permitting stage, so uh, it, it'll be some time um, from now before they submit their, uh, their permit, so it might be six months to a year before that decision is made. Um, I think we could, we could include a condition that encourages coordination or encourages investigation. In the, in the site plan approval. I mean, I mean, it's the only. Yes, and, it's the and only place we. Have. Yes, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking, to, I'm looking to Allie. And, and we have no issue with that kind of condition. I mean, we've said all along, we're willing to do what we can. The problem is, it's not really an issue that gets effectuated to permitting, and so, mm -hmm. and if for some reason we can't get the fire department, we didn't want a condition that. Got it. So, uh, best efforts condition uh, or something like that. I mean, we have conveyed to the Chase that we would work with them on that issue at the appropriate time. All right. How about we add a condition that, that the planning staff work to determine uh, whether a, a Woodmont Avenue address is, is feasible? I think you probably want to condition the applicant to coordinate with planning staff to, you know, in good faith explore uh, okay. address on no not on, on Woodmont Avenue. on Wood on Edgemont yeah Ali Myers no, for the record on Edgemont just now. The, the only thing I would say is if the condition can incorporate uh, the fire department the, you know with ultimate determination by the fire department or yeah. something so that yes if I could just jump in really quickly Tanya Stern acting planning director just want to emphasize just in terms of uh, writing the language for this condition, in terms of the street addressing and street names, uh, we, well, in this instance, particularly with street addressing, it's really the fire department that really will have the, the determination in terms of what's going to be feasible. So I just want to make sure that whatever is drafted clarifies that. The applicant will work with the fire department and, and staff to determine the appropriate address. How's that? Everybody got, is the rest of the board okay with that? Okay, that would be another condition. The other thing I would say before we get going is you have short-term uh, rental, I think it's uh, condition 21, but there might not be any short-term rental. So you should say any short-term, for any short-term rental, the, the development must comply with the limited use standards. They don't have to comply with the limited use standards if you're not doing it. Okay, uh, and the other wordsmithing thing I have is that uh, in the first uh, condition, I hate in accordance with. How about under? I also hate within, but or uh, so, uh, never mind. Um, or prior to is the other. <laughs> my other. 
There, there you go. Before works for for me. Uh, anybody else have anything to say? I'll entertain a motion. Anybody? I will move to approve the site plan with the conditions expressed. If we could start with the preliminary plan. Oh, the preliminary approval. plan. Sorry. So I move to approve uh, approve the preliminary plan with the um, edits we just discussed. And I second it. Okay, and that's uh, specifically to change it to to um, 111 units. Anybody else have anything to say? No. All all those in favor of the motion say aye. 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 Uh, that aye. there's nobody to oppose. <laughs> All right, so now, now we move to the uh, site plan to which there are amendments. Can I have a motion, please? You move to approve the site plan. As amended? As amended. Okay. Seconded. And staff understands all the amendments? Oh, yes. Okay. Uh, no further discussion. All those in favor say aye. 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 There's nobody to oppose. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you for coming.
Good afternoon. It's still March 9th, 2023, and it's still the planning board in beautiful downtown Wheaton. I was going to say Silver Spring, just to tell you how old everybody <laughs> This is really bad. Uh, we're on item seven. Um, this is a, a proposed zoning text amendment that we might want to pursue with the council. This is the Bethesda Overlay Zoe Development Plan Procedure Extensions. I'll turn it over to staff. Thank you. For the record, Jason Sartori, Chief of Countywide Planning and Policy, and I just wanted to take a quick moment to welcome our three new board members. Uh, you'll be seeing a lot of uh, my, my team over the next few months, uh, but here we're here today to talk about a zoning text amendment, and at the indulgence of the chair and vice chair, uh, I would uh, like to just take a, uh, have our Mr. Berbert here take a couple of slides to talk about what a zoning text amendment is and how it works in the process so that uh, we can all be on the same page. So with that, I'll turn it over to Mr. Berbert. All right, thank you. For the record, Ben Berbert with the Countywide Planning and Policy Team. Uh, as said, we are here to discuss a proposed ZTA uh, with the Bethesda Overlay Zone. Um, to get back to what a ZTA is, a ZTA, Zoning Text Amendment, if you haven't noticed, we love acronyms, the planning department, um, <laughs> is the mechanism which, which any change is made to the text of Chapter 59. Um, doesn't matter what you're changing. It could be adding a period that was missing, or it could be a complete new policy. They're all ZTAs, and they all go through a similar process. Um, you know, where did they get their start? Um, I feel like I need like a little gif of like, I'm a bill, I'm a bill. Um, <laughs> A ZTA in its formal form is always technically introduced by the council. Um, sometimes they come directly from a council member. Sometimes they come from the executive branch at the behest of the county executive. And sometimes they come from us as the planning board um, and then are introduced by council. Um, looking at the ZTA process, this is kind of a little bit of a flow chart we created sort of outlining how this works. The council member kind of direct introduction process starting on the top in red. You can see if the planning board requests the ZTA, that's going to be the middle track in blue. And if it's coming from the executive branch, that's the branch below in yellow. Um, the main thing I'd kind of point out is when the planning board requests the ZTA, we have this sort of discussion today to get your approval to transmit the ZTA and send it to council so they can kind of can catch up within the council track. Once the district council actually introduces the ZTA, it doesn't matter how it got introduced, it will continue along that same track. Um, the, as the planning board, we then have to have a hearing on the introduced ZTA. So if you do vote today to adopt, to recommend introduction of this ZTA, once it's introduced, I'll be back before you to say congratulations, it got in. Um, we actually then give our sort of formal comments at that point. Uh, both from sort of the land use zoning perspective, now we also do the perspective of the uh, climate assessment that gets added to that. Um, the board will then transmit its comments back to the council. They have their own public hearing on the matter. There are one or multiple committee work sessions to discuss everything they've heard and any changes they may want to make. The then full district council has sort of its final meeting um, or more, again, depending on how complicated this is, and they ultimately give their vote yay, nay, with or without amendments. Um, the procedures themselves are laid out in Chapter 59 under Section 724. Um, again, this is sort of where it says the board must kind of have a, a role in this. 
Um, the planning director must publish that staff report a week before the planning board has its hearing on those recommendations. And then we have up until the district council public hearing to transmit our recommendations. Again, I'll, I'll put a pin in that with the climate assessments that we now also transmit, those are actually due to the council a week before the hearing. And so we're kind of caught in this timeline limbo right now. So right now we're actually trying to transmit everything seven days prior to the council's public hearing. Um, maybe or maybe not more on that to come. Um, and then again, we're usually involved in the sort of follow-up work sessions that occur once these things get uh, through their public hearing at the district council. Um, so with that said, we're here to talk about a... Before you move on, uh, Tanya Stern, Acting Planning Director, uh, for the record, just wanted to pick up on something that Ben mentioned related to climate assessments. Um, as you may or may not be aware, the County Council passed a law last year that requires uh, climate assessments to be uh, produced um, either by the Office of Legislative Oversight for every bill that's introduced and uh, for uh, zoning text amendments and for master plans when they are transmitted to the County Council, the Planning Board has to produce those climate assessments. Uh, for the Planning Board, the Planning Department does those. And so uh, with uh, zoning text amendments, because there's a very short turnaround, um, those are, again, those, those have, the climate assessment has to be transmitted uh, when the planning board's comments are sent to the county council. And then for uh, the planning board uh, draft of a master plan, when that is transmitted to the county council, there's a climate assessment that has to go with that too. So just wanted to provide that background. And um, just to clarify, the reason you're not seeing one today is because this is requesting the introduction of the ZTA. We would actually do the climate assessment on the ZTA when and if the council were to introduce it formally and send it back to us. Um, do you have to do an equity assessment also in addition to the climate assessment? No, the Office of Legislative Oversight is responsible for doing uh, racial equity um, and social justice impact statements for, for ZTAs, per the county's racial equity law. The climate assessment law, is a, it's a separate law, um, and it replaced uh, an existing requirement that applied previously just to master plans to do a carbon footprint analysis, so this is sort of an updated version of that prior uh, requirement, uh, which again was, was transmitted when uh, master plans were transmitted. The planning board draft of master plans were transmitted to the county council. The council took a more broader perspective and applied this uh, climate assessment requirement for all introduced bills, uh, introduced ETAs, and master plans when they're transmitted. But to answer your question, no, we're not responsible for that. Um, so today, planning staff is recommending that the board will transmit a draft zoning text amendment, which was attached in your packet, to the district council and request introduction of this ZTA. The purpose of this ZTA would provide a one-year extension to the, I don't want to call them validity periods per se, but sort of to the deadlines that occur within the Bethesda overlay zone, that projects that utilize the Bethesda overlay zone or BAS density, um, they have to, up to two years to apply and have accepted with DPS the core and shell building permit. Um, again, this is actually something you've heard with the previous application. It is an application that is in the Bethesda overlay zone and was utilizing BOS density. Um, what this would do is grant a one-year automatic extension to sort of that validity window. Um, this is not terribly dissimilar to a lot of the validity period extensions that have been done over the years in the subdivision regulation for preliminary plan validity extensions, um, four of which that were done after the 
economic downturn in 2009. There was another one done recently, um, kind of as a, we don't know what COVID's gonna do to the economy sort of downturn. We don't normally do these in chapter 59 for site plans because site plans generally don't have their own expiration date attached to them. Um, this is something that is kind of unique to the Bethesda overlay zone. Um, I'm gonna just go through this very quickly because it was covered in the previous presentation you saw, um, but the Bethesda overlay zone is one of the many overlay zones in the zoning ordinance uh, with the primary purpose to implement the 2017 Bethesda downtown plan recommendations. One of the elements of the Bethesda overlay zone is this idea of BAS density, um, which allows certain uh, projects that utilize all of their mapped FAR and make park impact payments to have additional density beyond what is mapped on the ground. Um, just as sort of a, a little footnote, the way this works is back in 2017, there was about 23.1 million square feet of density in the Bethesda downtown plan area. That master plan through study of its adequate public facilities found that up to 32.4 million square feet of development could be satisfied in downtown Bethesda, um, creating a 9.2 and change million square feet sort of gap that was left to build. Um, and so what the plan did is it created a bit of a competitive market so that as applicants came in, not only could they come in for what the maximum zoning allotment was, they could come in for additional density making those payments. Um, and we are now tracking the development as it's going through, making sure that we do not issue permits for anything that's in excess of that 32.4 million total. Because this does create a bit of a competitive market, um, or really a first come first serve for development, the whole reason that there was this two year cap that you had to get a building permit by then is we didn't want applicants coming in, getting approval and then sitting for eight, 10, 12 years on this approval and not doing anything, knowing that there was a whole row of other applications right behind them that were maybe ready to break ground now and wouldn't be able to if all the density were used up in front of them. Um, just as a, a quick aside, the Bethesda overlay zone boundary um, it's equitable to the actual boundary of the downtown Bethesda plan. Um, so what we're really focusing on today is subsection D of section 492D4. This is the specific subsection that contains the language uh, talking about when and how you have to pull these building permits. Um, and so the area yellow highlighted, the applicant must have a building permit application accepted by the Department of Permitting Services, includes corn shell of the principal building within two years of the date of the planning board's resolution. Um, this is what I think the ZTA is targeting the change for. And so what the proposed uh, ZTA would do, let's take that whole subsection and at the bottom in red, adding a section stating notwithstanding the foregoing, any site plan utilizing BOS density that was valid on effective date of the ZTA, the deadline to have a building permit that includes the corn shell of the principal building accepted by the Department of Permitting Services is automatically extended by one year. Um, and so this was crafted in a way that it doesn't forever make that a three-year allotment for applicants. It's basically just the applications that are in line now, and we believe there's six of them that this could potentially affect, um, would potentially have that extra year. Um, again, Part of the reason to do this, this is kind of one of the only areas that we actually have these sort of time constraints on getting site plans applied for. Um, there's a pretty limited scope in who this would affect. Again, it's just those applications that are currently approved but haven't made it to building permit yet and are still within their two-year window. And sort of the reason that we've heard from the development community as to why this is something we should consider doing 
Um, and I think this is not news to anybody with the rise of inflation for building costs, labor, and materials. Um, and even more recently, a lot of the interest rate hikes have sort of made a lot of projects that made a lot of sense six, nine months ago even are really starting to run into problems. Um, you know, and, and so staff thinks this is not a, a unreasonable request to make, um, particularly because we are only, only offering one year of extended time, so we're not completely abandoning the intent of the Bethesda overlay zone. Um, and I think, you know, because there is still remaining BOS density, it's not like we're running up against a cap now that's likely to be breached. Um, the last uh, check that we did of the 9.2 million square feet that was identified in 2017, about 3 million of that is actually built and occupied. About 3.9 million of that is approved but not built, so it's actually the projects that would potentially be able to extend this. And there's about two and a quarter million square feet of density that remains. Um, and based on all of the past projections that we've seen, we're not gonna go through that in one year's time, although we are starting to get close to that number. Um, and the other thing I wanna note is the reason we're targeting that sort of first deadline um, of getting that permit accepted by Department of Permitting Services rather than the second deadline, which is then having the permit pulled, um, is usually if you're gonna run into an issue with your, your financing and your, your team, it's gonna be in that first deadline. Um, so the next steps, again, would be to transmit this draft ZTA to the District Council, requesting its introduction. And as we kind of ran through before, District Council would then introduce the ZTA. I'll be back before you a few weeks after that um, to have a, a second hearing on the matter um, in which we would transmit our, our official comments at that point. Council will hold its hearing, there will be subsequent work sessions, and then there will be a, a full Council action. Um, so as a reminder with that, staff is recommending the board transmit that draft ZTA that's attached um, to provide that one-year extension to the deadlines given within the Bethesda overlay zone to apply for that first building permit. And that concludes my presentation. Okay, so now having been appointed by the council, you're asking the we're asking the council to do something. Uh, <laughs> so it's only fair that they put us to work, so we put them to work. Uh, do, do I... Have any comments, Commissioner uh, Pinero? Yeah, let me ask a question. Why are we doing this? I understand why we're doing it for yes. Bethesda because of <laughs> development pressures, whatever. But the issue of the higher cost of construction, the interest rate, it applies to other um, overlay zones. Can you comment on why don't we do it to all over, overlay zones? The Bethesda overlay zone is the only one that requires you to pull permit within two years of site plan approval. Oh, really? Okay. None of the other overlays do this because they don't have that limited density cap that they're pulling from. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, so we don't have another one that, like Silver Spring or no. there's no issue. Okay. All right, thank you. Um, did you receive this request from developers? Did they, do you have a lot of developers that are anxiously waiting for that? And do you know that if you extend it, how much relief you provide to how, how, you know, the percentage of the development that is waiting to happen but they cannot make it? So the concern was brought to us by the development community. Um, you know, it's hard to forecast whether one year is going to be enough relief for them or not. Um, I think we're hesitant to offer more than a year because we don't want to 
stray too far from the intent of the Bethesda overlay zone because there still may be other projects that even in the more constrained market that we're in that can move forward. And if you start extending it two or three years, I think you really do run the risk that this would extend into actually reaching the cap of the Bethesda overlay zone density. Um, and so I think we were willing to entertain one year as a, a sort of fair, you know, it gives them more time to, to figure out their next step. And if it still doesn't work, then, you know, the intent would be that they would lose their approval. Thank you. Commissioner Bartlett. Can you go to the slide with the amended language that was in red type? So this is an automatic extension without application? Correct. This is the same way that the validity periods for APF as well as plan validity have been handled in the past on the preliminary plan side. Um, it's, it's sort of the, it, it's the way the council has done this in the past where they've just said anybody who is still valid can take advantage of this. Um, I can't opine on to why that is the direction council's always taken, but it is what they've taken. So instead of adding that sentence, why wouldn't it just say within three years of the Department of Permitting Services accepting the building because permit? Because that would change this provision going forward indefinitely. By having um, effective on effective date of the ZTA, it provides relief for people who are in the pipeline right this minute during the sort of economic crunch that we're in. Um, if we get through this and the economy kind of rebounds, I don't think we want to have three years as a, an ongoing provision. We really want to get back to that, too, as soon as we can. Anybody? Uh, commissioner? Yeah. Just one quick question. The, the 9.2 million square feet, that's residential only, right? Not residential. It's, it's all FAR. It's all FAR. OK. Just curious. Thanks. Otherwise. Yeah. Seeing no further questions, oh, do we want to do this or not? Do I hear a motion? I move. I move to accept the proposed ZTA for submission to the County Council. And I will second that. Do you have more discussion? No. no. Um, all those in favor say aye. 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 Opposed, zero. I can count that. Thank you very much. Do we have to pause again? We have to pause again. <laughs>
Okay, the next time you'll hear the chair's voice, you'll hear voices in the background too. But in any event, it's March 9th, 2023. We are still on item eight, or actually we're getting to item eight. Uh, this is uh, 14511 Jones Lane, uh, lot 23, preliminary plan number one. 1996-072A, it's Forest Conservation Plan Amendment. We have staff to take us through. Yes, uh, good afternoon. Mary Jo Kishter with the Up County Planning Division. And um, nice to meet you all, and I'm uh, happy to be here today to present. <laughs> uh, this is, uh, as the chair mentioned, this is uh, Preliminary Plan Amendment 1-1996-072A. Uh, it's known as 14511 Jones Lane, Lot 23. Uh, this is a request to amend the final forest conservation plan only that is associated with the preliminary plan 1 1999 It is a request to abandon a 0.05 acre or a little over 2,300 square foot Category 1 conservation easement there's no land disturbance proposed as part of this application, and it's, it's strictly to amend the forest conservation plan to remove a small conservation easement. Uh, to orient you, the property is shown on this slide outlined in red. It is located on Jones Lane, approximately 1,100 feet north of its intersection with Turkey Foot Road, and it's in North Potomac. The property is surrounded by R200 zoned residential development. And this is a closer look at the site, again outlined in red. It's uh, lot 23. It's approximately 0.46 acres in size, and it's improved with an existing house and a driveway access off Jones Lane on the uh, south side of the lot. It's zoned R200, and there are no environmentally sensitive features on the property. The applicant has um, satisfied all the community outreach requirements, including signposting and noticing requirements. We have not received any community correspondence um, related to the application. And a little history on it, um, preliminary plan 1-1996-0720 was approved in 1996 um, to create these two lots shown here. It includes lot 23, which is the subject property. And at that time of the subdivision, the house existed and um, to, it remained as it is today. And it also created lot 22, which is a flag lot shown here in the rear. As part of that subdivision, there was a forest conservation plan that had a planting requirement of 0.14 acres that was met to be met on site and it included a category one conservation easement that's outlined in green on the properties and it crossed over the two, two lots. Uh, the application today is um, to amend the final forest conservation plan. Again, there's no disturbance proposed. And the, the applicant um, would like to abandon the portion of the conservation easement that exists on their lot, which is highlighted in the yellow hatch pattern on this screen. And to mitigate for that um, removal, they are proposing uh, to pay into our uh, pay fee in lieu into our forest conservation fund at a ratio of two to one. So to remove the 0 0.05 acres, they would pay the equivalent fee for 0.10 acres. 
Um, the application does satisfy Chapter 22A, the Montgomery County Forest Conservation Law. This existing Category 1 conservation easement does not protect any forest or environmentally sensitive features. It does not meet the minimum size criteria for the definition of forest, which is 10,000 square feet. And it does not conform to the uh, current planning board policy to not accept conservation easements on lots less than two acres in size. And it's for these reasons that staff is supporting the removal of this easement. Um, in addition, the uh, application conforms to Section 22A-12G2 of the Forest Conservation Law, which basically allows for an applicant to make a fee-in-lieu payment to the Forest Conservation Fund if they demonstrate that the reforestation requirement is less than a half acre, which this is, and um, the planning board finds that there's no priority planting area present on site or other appropriate planting areas available on site. And those, those areas are typically stream buffers and, and think, steep slopes, things of that nature. And none of those exist on this, on this lot. Uh, we do have uh, minor revisions to conditions of approval. Um, condition number eight and nine have the same revision, and it's um, to add the, the language that's underlined here on this screen, and it's basically just clarifying that it's the preliminary plan amendment number in front of the actual plan number. And that's the same for both of these conditions. Otherwise, the content of the conditions is the same and as, as written in the staff report. Uh, staff is recommending approval of the preliminary plan amendment 1-1996-072A with conditions as amended in this presentation. Uh, that concludes my presentation, and I'm happy to answer any questions you might have. Thank you. This is a public uh, hearing with no public testimony. No one signed up for public testimony. I know the applicant's attorney is online. If we have questions for her, uh, an old compatriot, uh, Michelle Rosenfeld as well. Uh, uh, any questions? I do I have a question. Um, in reading the proposal, this is... Um, the desired uh, remedy is so that a fence can be installed, not a new structure like a building or a dwelling place, correct? Right. Um, the applicant has, they have a dog. It's my understanding they have a dog that they would like to be able to run free and they want a fence in the yard. And uh, there's actually nothing, there's, I don't know because it's so old. I believe the plantings may have occurred that were required at the time of the subdivision, but that was that back in 1996. I've been out to the property. There's like one pine tree growing there. Um, so when they purchased the property in 2020, it existed as it does today. So it's not protecting anything. Yeah, they, they're not planning anything other than to fence the yard for their dog to roam free and, and not have, be encumbered by an easement. Um, could the eventuality be um, the construction of a new dwelling place if we grant this? No, it, it's it's just a recorded lot that allows one dwelling unit, and that's and if if they were to propose something else like tear down the existing house and build something new, they would be subject to sediment control, and they'd come back in here for forest conservation, and we'd be, we'd be back here, and you'd be reviewing that as well. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Anybody else? Yes. Just out of curiosity, so I noticed on the, the figure one that you have, there's, there's been a couple of other easements around there that have been abandoned previously. Was it for similar situations, or was there, do, do you know off the top of your head it's not? 
I don't know off the top of my okay. head. Okay, um, But some yes, of they have. There have been other easement removals. These and one of the reasons, and I can kind of go into that just for your knowledge. Mm -hmm. The current planning board policy is not to put easements on lots less than two acres. <laughs> and over time and experience, we've learned that they tend to fail. They tend to get encroached upon. Mm -hmm. You know, homes change hands. What a variety of reasons. Um, people may want to clean it up. Um, you're not supposed to do that sort of thing, and it's it becomes a burden on the homeowners. They don't ha often have a usable area, mm -hmm. usable backyard, which they all would desire, and a burden on our staff, our inspection staff, when they're trying to monitor and and keep track of these things. So, this is old. Um, we don't we wouldn't accept this today. Um, it's just and kind of cleaning up, I guess. And the Forest Conservation Fund, those monies are used to plant in more appropriate areas where we'd get. Uh, you know, for environmental reasons. Any other comments or questions? You, you know, there's a limit that we can only uh, speak one word for every square foot of action we're taking. So we're limited to 2,000 feet here. Um, uh, can I have a motion? Mr. Chair, I'd like to move that we approve the 14511 Jones Lane. Uh, Lot 23 preliminary plan amendment number Forest one Conservation Amendment. What? It's a forest conservation. Forest Converse. Yeah, Forest Conservation Plan Amendment. Seconded. Any further discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor say aye. 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 Nobody Thank opposed. Thank you very much. You're welcome. See that? You, you spoke less than 2,000 words always. <laughs> Thank you. I did. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you very much. We have to pause again.
Good afternoon. Welcome to the last item on today's uh, March 9, 2023 Planning Board Agenda. This is item 9, Preston Place Preliminary Plan 1, 2022-0130 and Site Plan Number 8, 2022-0180. Uh, I'll turn it over to staff first. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. Good afternoon and welcome new members to the board. Happy to have you here. Uh, for the record, my name is Adam Bossi. I'm with the Down County Planning Team. Uh, today, I'm happy to be here this afternoon with staff's presentation for Preston Place and Lake Apartments development proposal. Uh, so there's actually two regulatory applications under consideration with this proposal, uh, the preliminary plan and site plan that the chair just mentioned. In general, the preliminary plan proposes uh, the lots and parcels as well as some of the basic underlying components of the development uh, per the subdivision ordi ordinance. Uh, the site plan provides the detailed design for the proposed development. Uh, collectively, the two applications are proposing a two-phase development of 147 new townhouses uh, and their associated infrastructure. Uh, there are a lot of pieces to this proposal, so I'm going to cover them fairly quickly and, and maybe a little broadly, so please feel free to ask questions. Uh, the site of today's proposal is two non-contiguous tracts of land on the south side of Manor Road in Chevy Chase Lake. As you can see on the image on the right here, we refer to the two tracts as Phase 1 and Phase 2. Uh, combined, these properties have an area of about 12.6 acres. Uh, the site is east of Connecticut Avenue and not far south of the Capitol Beltway. Uh, the image on the lower left side of, of the slide is a portion of the Purple Line light rail alignment with the site's location uh, highlighted. Uh, the site we're speaking about today is within walking distance of a new Purple Line station that is under development near Connecticut Avenue. Uh, looking in a little closer at the neighborhood here, the site is bound by Manor Road to the north with an elementary school and single-family homes beyond. The Capitol Crescent Trail and Purple Line Corridor bound the site to the south. Uh, the Chevy Chase Muse uh, townhouse condos are located in between the Phase 1 and Phase 2 areas. Abutting the east side of Phase 2 is Coakland Run and its associated uh, forested stream valley. To the west of Phase 1 is Chevy Chase Lake Block B development, uh, which is under construction. Block B is where the uh, new Purple Line station is planned. You can see with the uh, little purple star on the, the map here. Uh, speaking of the Block B development, the top photo here is uh, of, of the frontage of Manor Road with uh, Chevy Chase Block B uh, shown in the image here. Uh, this and the rest of the images here are, are of active or recently completed development projects around the new Purple Line station in Chevy Chase Lake. Uh, you can get a sense of that with a little key map here on the right. Uh, as you can see, it's a busy neighborhood for new development. Uh, and these photos I took earlier this week, just walking quickly through them. We saw the Block B one. Uh, number two there is the new Purple Line bridge that was installed uh, sometime last year. Number three on the west side of Connecticut Ave is Crescent at Chevy Chase. That's a new multifamily building. Uh, number four is the Lindy, also a new multifamily building, and then the Chevy Chase uh, Lake Townhomes on Chevy Chase Lake Drive. Uh, shown here, most of the site is in the R30 zone. The far eastern edge of the Phase Two area is in the R60 zone. Uh, this is illustrated in the top image on the slide. The site is within the area of the subject of the 2013 Chevy Chase Lake sector plan. Uh, the lower image is from the sector plan, and it does show the overall vision for the area, which focuses on the area around that new Purple Line station. Uh, that's roughly shown in the shades of blue here, surrounding the intersection of, of the Purple Line on uh, Connecticut Avenue. 
Uh, the phase one area of the subject site is located directly adjacent to, but outside of this uh, blue marketed station area. Uh, the sector plan does not make specific recommendations for the subject site as it does for the sites nearest the Purple Line station. However, it does speak uh, to the area of today's proposal serving as a transition between the dense development nearest the Purple Line, think Chevy Chase Lake Block B, and the single family home uh, neighborhoods that are located to the east. Uh, the sector plan does include general recommendations that focus on preserving community character, enhancing tree canopy and environmental features, including Coquitlam Run and its stream valley. Uh, the plan does recommend creating a pedestrian and bicyclist path along Coquitlam Run, uh, really from Jones Bridge Road to Rock Creek Park. Uh, this Coquitlam Run path is shown as the brown arrow pointing northwest to southeast on that right side image. A portion of this path is located adjacent to the phase two area. I do also want to note here that while not visible on this image, there is a recommendation in the bicycle and pedestrian master plan for new bike lane to be provided along Manor Road. Uh, as is discussed in the staff report, it was determined during the review of Chevy Chase Lock, uh, Block B that that bike lane should be provided along the north side of Manor Road and not on the south side abutting the subject site. Existing on site today in the phase one area are the lake apartments. Uh, these are a series of low-rise apartment buildings with a total of 67 units that staff understands have been largely vacated at this point. Uh, the picture outlined in red is of the apartment site. On the phase two area uh, is the existing Preston Place development. This includes 66 townhouse units arranged in a, around a loop driveway. Uh, it's our understanding that these units are occupied and intended to remain so until the applicant is prepared to move forward with phase two. A photo of Preston Place is outlined here in blue. Uh, in total, there's 133 existing units across both sites. And in addition to the buildings, uh, both sites uh, include surface parking lots, open lawn areas, trees. Uh, there are multiple mature canopy trees internal to the properties as well as along the site's manor road frontage. So the proposal in front of the board today is the two-phase redevelopment of the Lake Apartments and Preston Place townhomes. Phase one of the project is the redevelopment of the Lake Apartments site, and this is outlined in red here on this slide. Phase two will redevelop Preston Place, outlined in blue. I'll speak some of the details about each phase and some of the upcoming slides, but want to talk first to some of the design features that apply to the overall, overall proposal here. And I mentioned there's a, a total of 147 new townhouse units proposed. Uh, that's 14 more units than currently exist across the two sites. Uh, that 147 new unit number is inclusive of 23 moderately priced dwelling units. Uh, and there are currently no uh, moderately priced dwelling units that exist on these properties. Uh, each townhouse stick or block of attached units includes between three and nine townhomes. All units will include garages. Uh, the front facade design for rear loaded units uh, is in the upper image here on the left side of the slide. And the lower building image is of the front loaded townhouses. Uh, rear loaded units are generally provided along Manor Road and internal to both sites. Uh, most of the rear loaded units do front on landscape common open spaces. Front loaded units are provided along the western and southern bounds of each site as well as along the east side of phase two. I uh, noted here on the slide community character, connectivity, open space, and trees. The preservation of uh, neighborhood character, enhancing pedestrian and bicyclist infrastructure, and protecting and improving tree canopy. Uh, natural resources and open space are key considerations of the sector plan that staff does feel that this proposal does embrace. 
uh, does so with the overall design being in line with what's allowed in the zone and envisioned by the sector plan uh, regarding the type and density of the development that's envisioned. It uh, does provide a transition from high-density development, again happening nearest the Purple Line, to low-density development of the single-family neighborhoods to the east. Uh, and this is in line with the sector plan's vision. Units here are laid out to frame open spaces, allow for views in and out of the property from Manor Road, and provide for common open spaces as well as a well-connected system of sidewalks and paths. Uh, this includes two new connections between Manor Road and the Capitol Crescent Trail, as well as a pedestrian pathway that will span between Phase 1 and Phase 2 along the south side of the Muse property. Uh, that's indicated here by that kind of funny-shaped blue uh, outlined area at the bottom of Phase 2. Uh, so again, that, that path will connect all three properties and provide a means for the Muse residents to actually access those two new connections to Manor Road and the Capitol Crescent Trail. Uh, the timing for the completion of the Muse path and connections to the Capitol Crescent Trail from both phases are really dependent on the Purple Line's work in these areas. Uh, they have some work that will take place on the south side of the Muse property uh, that would need to occur before that path could go in. And certainly their work uh, with the Capitol Crescent Trail would need to be uh, coordinated with any connection to it. Uh, you'll see some of these items I, I mentioned in a little bit more detail as we move forward. Uh, here the building architecture is, is really well thought out and uh, quality facade designs are provided. New canopy trees are proposed in common areas in both phases and along private streets and open spaces internal to the site. The project will improve the Manor Road frontage with a new wider sidewalk from the west side of Phase 1 uh, all the way easterly to the uh, Jones Bridge Road intersection with Manor Road. New canopy trees are proposed on the south side of the frontage area at Manor Road with shorter ornamental trees to be provided in a buffer strip uh, between the sidewalk and roadway. Uh, the application and recommended conditions of approval in the staff report do place a focus on retaining as many existing canopy trees along the site's Manor Road frontage as possible. So looking across both sites again, vehicular access is going to be provided for Manor Road with one point of access to Phase 1 and two points to Phase 2. Private roads, alleys, and sidewalks are provided internal to the development. Uh, and you can see the two Manor Road Capital Crescent Trail connections on the east side of, of each phase here. Those are marked with a, a yellow dashed line. Uh, you can also see that connector path on the Muse property again. Mentioned before, common open space is provided, uh, and it does uh, include some centrally located open space within each of the phases, uh, as well as uh, some larger areas along the eastern sides of both phase that coincide with the uh, connector pathways. Uh, you can see here with the rear-loaded units that, again, are really internal to each site, uh, and along Manor Road, they are fronting on, on open spaces. Uh, you can also see here that the open space, open space areas are to be well-planted and landscaped. On the phase two area on the right side of the image, um, I do want to point out there is another pedestrian connection that I didn't mention before um, that's uh, fairly easy to see on this slide. If you look at the uh, southwest corner of phase two, there is a pedestrian pathway that comes up from that corner uh, that's going to move up into the center of the site and then across about midway through to connect with the, the Muse path there. Uh, move be in between groups of townhouses. Uh, we'll see this pass, path uh, featured in some of the upcoming illustrative images. 
Uh, speaking to the preliminary plan, it does request to create the lots and parcels to support the development of the 147 townhouses and associated infrastructure, such as the private roads and open spaces. Uh, and it does include some additional requests for waivers, variances, a waiver, a variance, and extended validity periods. Uh, the waiver request is for residential roads paralleling railroad tracks. And staff does support this waiver request. Essentially here, the southern portions of the private roads in phase one and two are about 90 to 100 feet from the uh, future Purple Line track location. And it's really not feasible for the applicant to provide the 160-foot uh, separation without a, a significant reduction in the scale of their development. Uh, as, pre as I previously noted, the scale that is proposed now is in line with what the sector plan does uh, envision for the area. Uh, on the lower part of the slide, we have the variance request. Um, this is a, a variance request under the Forest Conservation Act for uh, specimen tree impacts. Uh, and staff here uh, with the applicant worked pretty hard to limit impacts and ensure mitigation is provided for any of those specimen trees that are removed or, or impacted from construction. Uh, staff is supportive of the variance request, and there is a detailed discussion about this on uh, starting around page 45 in the staff report. Uh, regarding the request for extended validity periods, uh, the preliminary plan requests an extended validity period of six years. Uh, this is in line with the phasing plan that was provided for the application. This validity period would be a year longer than the typical five years of subdivision, uh, the subdivision provisions allow for a single phase project. Uh, so staff is supportive of, of the request here. Uh, the preliminary plan also requests an extended nine-year validity period for adequate public facilities findings. Uh, there's typically a five-year validity period for these. The longer validity period here is requested uh, to accommodate the phase nature of the pro project over a longer period of time. And uh, the rationale to support that is uh, tied to economic uncertainties and complexities, tied to the future completion of the Purple Line and reopening of the Capitol Crescent Trail. Uh, and staff is supportive of the uh, ex extended validity period for the adequate public facilities findings as well. Uh, the site plan uh, proposes the development of the townhouses themselves and associated infrastructure under the uh, MPDU optional method of development for residential zones. Uh, so moderately priced dwelling units uh, are entered into the Department of Housing and Community Affairs Affordable Housing Program. Uh, the applicant and uh, Housing and Community Affairs do enter into a separate agreement to this point as, as the board heard earlier today. Uh, here, the applicant is providing 23 uh, MPDU units, which does meet the requirements uh, for, for the site and the zone. Looking at phase one in a little bit more detail, uh, again, this will redevelop the lake apartment site with 63 new townhouse units. Uh, Front-loaded units, again, are shown along the west and south sides of the site with uh, rear-loaded units making up the rest of, of those provided. On the east side of the site, we see that landscape pedestrian pathway with benches and other amenities, again, that will provide a publicly accessible connection between Manor Road and the Capitol Crescent Trail. Uh, the existing sidewalk on the south side of Manor Road is to be replaced with a wider one and across the entire frontage area and over to the phase two area uh, that's represented with the um, extension of, of the red demarcation line at the top right corner of the, of the slide there. Uh, new canopy tree plantings are represented by the green circles that we see here, and shorter ornamental trees are represented by the pink ones. 
Uh, you'll notice wherever it's feasible, canopy trees are provided and along more restricted spaces such as the alleyways and uh, directly along Manor Road, uh, ornamental trees are being provided. Phase two will redevelop Preston Place with 84 new townhouses and include uh, those elements previously discussed, such as private roads, alleys, sidewalks, et cetera. Um, here, the frontage improvements will run along the frontage of this property all the way down to Jones Bridge Road and include a, a similar planting design in the wider sidewalks. Uh, the path along Coquelin Run is, uh, is that connection that's recommended by the sector plan. Here the applicant has actually brought that path out of the Stream Valley and onto their property, which we think is, is really a great and wonderful thing. Um, so they have elected to provide that as part of this project, which we think is, is pretty awesome. Um, slide 17. So this is just an illustrative image and a smaller section drawing of that Coquelin Run path. Uh, it's placed between the rear of units on the east side of phase two in the forested stream valley. The rear units that face the path have been designed with balconies and backyards, and they do allow for that visual interplay between the spaces. Uh, they've also been designed with decorative fences and landscaping. Uh, those treatments, along with the grade separation between the path and the backyards, really do help define and separate the publicly accessible path space and private yards of the owners. Uh, so the design is such that it, it's really embracing the path and not turning its back on it, uh, so to speak. Uh, building design, uh, so starting with these and moving through the next series of slides, we'll walk through uh, the facade designs for the townhouse units, shown here as was in, in an earlier image of the uh, front facade designs of your rear-loaded and front-loaded uh, front loaded units. Uh, sides of end units in highly visible locations are to receive upgraded architectural treatments. Uh, shown here are some examples of the highly visible end unit treatments, uh, which do incorporate balconies, side entrances, and more windows uh, than you'd find on the, the end of a standard unit. Uh, these details in design do make these units and spaces they frame more visually interesting and create opportunities to activate uh, the sidewalks and open spaces that they front on uh, do allow residents to get outside in the spaces and again, interact with them, be out on their balcony in and out of the doors, et cetera. Uh, the next series of slides are illustrative images that present a, a mini virtual walkthrough, that pedestrian pathway that uh, bisects the phase two area and connects with the Coquelin Run Path. Um, so I'm gonna walk you through that, this image, uh, Excuse me, the right side image on the slide is like a little key that shows you where we are. The arrow is indicating kind of the view of the picture that we're seeing here. Uh, so this is moving from the southwest corner of the site more toward the central area after just crossing the uh, private roadway here. Uh, this is moving northeast, crossing an alley toward the central open, open space. Here we can see some of those high visibility uh, side treatments on, on the townhouse units. Moving a little further northeast, we're uh, in a space that's about to enter the central open space. And here we are, uh, out of, uh, into the central open space. You can see there's benches, it's well landscaped, and there is a uh, lawn and green space area as well. So here we are, we've moved out of that central courtyard to a pathway that's in between two sticks of townhouse units. It's gonna take us down to the Coquelin Run path. 
which is where we are now. We've just come down those steps on the right side onto the path and are looking uh, in a southerly direction. Uh, regarding community outreach, the applicant did complete all noticing and outreach requirements for the applications as well as did some additional outreach, which is outlined here. Uh, staff did send out new notices for this hearing today as well. Uh, we did receive correspondence from members of the community during the review of this proposal. Uh, most of that correspondence was received in the days prior to the original hearing date of February 23rd. Um, we did provide responses to those comments in the staff report. Um, additional comments that were received since then, including a few that were received yesterday, uh, were not addressed in the staff report uh, as it had already posted by the time we received those comments. Uh, in general, most of the comments received focus on the topics of preservation of existing mature trees along Manor Road and the concept of undergrounding the existing overhead uh, utilities along that same frontage area. Uh, so we just want to take a look at that Manor Road frontage area. Um, so here's, these are two street view images. Uh, the image outlined in red is looking in an easterly direction. Um, in front of the lake apartment site, phase one area, and the image on the left side, outlined in blue, is looking proximate, uh, a few, few feet up from the intersection of Jones uh, Bridge Road and Manor Road with the uh, Preston townhouses on the left side of the image. Um, so these do provide a representative view of the site's frontage area as it exists now. Uh, as you can see, there are a number of existing mature canopy trees in this area, which are directly next to utility poles and wires. Uh, the staff report does provide a lot of detail as to how the proposal conforms with conservation, uh, forest conservation requirements uh, with the conditions of approval that we've recommended. Uh, the proposal does minimize impacts to specimen trees and does provide uh, appropriate mitigation. The planting program uh, is overall robust and does yield an overall enhancement in the quantity and diversity of, of tree and plant species that are going to be uh, provided on the site. Additionally, the proposal and recommended conditions of approval do build in efforts to save and retain as many of those uh, existing canopy trees located along the site's Manor Road frontage as possible. Uh, regarding the concept of undergrounding the existing utilities on the site's frontage as part of this project, uh, several of the public comments that we received uh, did suggest this should be required, uh, as should the retention of existing canopy trees. Uh, the sector plan itself uh, does have a recommendation for undergrounding of existing utilities, but that's limited to an area around the Purple Line stations, some of that area we saw in blue on the slides earlier. Again, uh, the subject site is outside of those areas, and the sector plan doesn't have a recommendation for underground, undergrounding existing overhead utilities here. Uh, speaking to the utility requirements of the subdivision ordinance, uh, all utilities proposed internal to the subject site are required to be undergrounded and, and are proposed uh, as such with this application. Uh, part 1B of the, of the uh, utility portion of the subdivision ordinance uh, does give the board some discretion to require undergrounding of the existing overhead utilities in the site's frontage. Uh, so to that point, staff and the applicant did discuss the potential for this and really various pros and cons of different scenarios that could, could potentially make that happen. Uh, I will say those discussions <laughs> occurred at, at length, which I'm sure Pat and uh, Josh could uh, fill you in more on. But there were a number of factors that really work against undergrounding in this location, including the existence of other subsurface utilities in the frontage area, gas and water primarily, 
on the costs associated with undergrounding compared with the scale of the development. Uh, what was really most compelling for staff uh, that really convinced us to stop pushing the applicant to look at this uh, would be that really any, any effort to underground the existing utilities there would be highly impactful to the critical root zones of those canopy trees and necessitate the removal of, of all of them from the site's frontage along Manor Road, including what we see in the image here. So staff does favor efforts to preserve and enhance those canopy trees in the frontage area as the retention is of higher service to the sector plan's emphasis on preserving community character and expanding tree canopy uh, more so than undergrounding of utilities is. Uh, staff sees the efforts to save some of those uh, existing uh, mature trees that are included in the proposal and recommended conditions of approval as a positive outcome of the development review process. Uh, staff does have modifications to put forth to the language of some of the recommended conditions of approval uh, as they are written in the staff report, which I'll, I'll go through fairly quickly in these slides. Uh, the recommended modifications are shown in red with uh, language removals shown with a strike through and additions underlined. Uh, these modifications are generally for ensuring clarity and making a few housekeeping cleanup adjustments. Uh, so the first revision here is to preliminary plan condition 10. Uh, the intent of this edit is to really make it clear that the demolition of the vacant lake apartments can occur prior to the recordation of plats. Uh, as mentioned earlier, these buildings are no longer occupied and the applicant would like to be able to move forward with demolishing them as soon as possible. This allows for that as they uh, really clean up and finalize their site plan for certification and uh, get their plats ready for recordation. Uh, preliminary plan condition 14, uh, this edit is to clarify the category one easement uh, for forest conservation should be provided with phase two of the development. Uh, preliminary plan condition 15 and part B, we're just adding S to worksheets just to make it clear there are uh, two worksheets required, not a single one. Site plan condition 17, the modification you see here just allows uh, the applicant a little bit more flexibility in selecting a tree care firm to help them uh, implement their program. Seven uh, E here, or, or E and F are both minor clarifications that we thought were important, you know, just uh, making the distinction between the two phases of development and what's going to be provided with each. Again, these are geared toward forest conservation. 7G, also geared toward forest conservation. Uh, these modifications are similar to 7C and just allow the applicant a little bit more flexibility uh, in, in bringing on an expert to help them. And the edits that we see on the bottom are to clarify that the environmental enhancement work that's proposed is gonna occur with phase two as, as that enhancement work is in the phase two area. Uh, condition 14D, this is just a correction of a typo. It should be 11 units, not 12. And with that, I am finally pleased to recommend the board approve the preliminary plan and site plan applications with the conditions included in the staff report uh, with the modifications just discussed here. Thank you. Thank you. We'll get, you'll get questions later, but uh, we'll hear from uh, Mr. Carr, who would like to speak on this topic. He's representing the uh, Sierra Montgomery Group. Is, is that a civic organization? The group? Yes. Uh, yeah. It's called the Sierra Club Montgomery Group. Oh, not Sierra Club, just straight up, huh? Yeah. No. Uh, okay. So. All right. You've got eight minutes. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, good afternoon. 
Chair Zients, Vice Chair Pinheiro, and uh, Commissioners, for the record, my name is Al Carr, and I am here on behalf of the Sierra Club Montgomery Group. I really appreciated the comments of the new commissioners talking about improving livability in Montgomery County. And one way to do that would be to reject this application and uh, ask the applicant to come back in 30 days after they have agreed to bury the wires along Manor Road and to uh, substitute the short ornamental trees that are in the public right-of-way with, with tall overstory trees. That would be consistent with the sector plan and with the complete streets guidelines. Uh, the benefits of bearing those wires and planting large trees would be to cool off and shade that, that area and to improve uh, the water quality. Uh, as uh, Mr. Bossy said, the staff report does say that they're concerned that bearing the wires would harm the uh, uh, existing mature trees, but uh, I have some new information that I obtained after that staff report was published that I think is, is very important. Uh, so the existing conditions, as you saw in the photographs, there are 10 mature trees. I think they're pin oaks, and the applicant had rated those as being in fair condition. I agree with that assessment, having walked that area recently. Uh, they are about 10 feet back from the curb line. Applicant proposes to take down five of those trees and to leave five remaining. Uh, and I'm no tree expert, but those trees look like they may be original to the development. They're pretty well cared for, uh, maybe 74 years old or whenever that original development was built. But uh, will they be alive in 15 years? I don't know. They appear to be towards the end of their uh, life. But in any case, uh, the reason why those wires can be buried without harming those trees or their roots is if you look uh, just to the east, Pepco completed a project called Sligo to Linden, where they buried two very large regional uh, power lines in the Montgomery Hills and uh, Linden area, so on streets like Seminary Road, Montgomery Avenue, Hale, Birch, Fraser. Uh, these two lines were very recently buried, and they were buried underneath the roadway pavement. So that's, there's a lot of trees in that area. None of the trees were harmed when that was done. And then contrast that with Manor Road. Manor Road is, is wider than all of those roads, and the wires that come along Manor Road are much smaller. This is a single phase of a Pepco feeder line. Uh, the only wires that really conflict with the tree canopy are the one at the very top. That's the, the Pepco partial feeder. That's the one that needs to be uh, buried. But they can be buried underneath the roadway. Um, there is in our written testimony uh, an email from um, uh, the director of uh, Montgomery County Department of Transportation. They're fine with that. Uh, that idea, you know, is, as long as uh, other options are not available. So I think another reason to uh, uh, reject this proposal and require the undergrounding is about uh, trust. So I represented this area as a 
a legislator for about 15 years. I followed the sector plan. I think it was approved in 2012. It was very contentious. But the, the areas where everyone agreed were the sector plan language about environmental protection, tree canopy, stormwater, bearing the wires, pedestrian uh, safety. And this, in this neighborhood, the tree canopy has been uh, harmed greatly by everything that's been going on. The first major application that came through after the sector plan was approved was Block B. That was on Connecticut Avenue. And the applicant uh, didn't want to bury the lines there. They said it's too hard. We don't want to bury the lines. The staff uh, was persuaded to agree with them. And your predecessors, the planning board, uh, approved that. And it happened very quietly. The community was not aware of it. It didn't come up during the pre-submittal community meeting. It wasn't even discussed during the planning board public hearing. It was only afterwards when the construction was underway uh, and the applicant had come back for a revision to folks start to realize, you know, and you can imagine their great disappointment, um, you know, imagining this sector plan and its vision not being realized and in stuck, instead being stuck with these ugly uh, wires on Connecticut Avenue that were pictured in some of the, the, the shots that you saw and these you know, ornamental trees instead of the big trees. And I think that undermine trust and you know we're in a moment where we're trying to rebuild the trust on land use in Montgomery County uh, back in that era the DRC development and review committee staff review was opaque uh, DRC was in violation of the open meetings law that has been remedied um, and that remedy I think directly came out of block B um, your parent agency MNCPPC was not following our state ethics laws that's been remedied and there was a, a bill that I wrote, House Bill 1059, that passed last year to ensure that doesn't happen again. That came right out of Block B. Uh, there's a lot of talk about forest conservation at the state and county level. When folks in Chevy Chase Lake learned that when trees are cut down there, they don't, they don't get re, replanted nearby. Instead, a farmer in Boyd's, the farthest possible corner in Montgomery County, gets a check to preserve trees that already exist. Uh, so. Uh, that's uh, some of the frustration um, that came out of Block B. And this project, it's, it complies with uh, MPDU regulations, but it's not affordable housing. It, it's not a net zero environmental uh, project, all electric, energy efficient. And it's not really smart growth. It's, it's replacing naturally occurring missing middle with upper middle. If you look at the... the Phase one that's close to the purple line, it's actually a decrease in the number of, of units. And phase two is, is a slight increase. Uh, anyway, if, if you agree with, uh, with us, it would send a message to applicants and to the community that sector plans will be respected in Montgomery County. Uh, instead, if you approve the staff recommendation, it sends the op opposite message. In the June, uh, 2022 DRC meeting for this project, the staff, to their credit, they did ask the, the applicant about bearing the wires. And the applicant pointed to Block B. They said in Block B, they, they didn't have to do it, so why should we have to do it? Uh, so if you don't ask for the lines to be, be buried, what I predict is that when the west side of Connecticut Avenue gets redeveloped, with that's where Minoli Cannoli is and Einstein Bagels, the applicant will ask for a waiver of bearing the lines, and they'll point to Block B, and they'll point to Manor Road, and say, look look what happened uh, then. Uh, so in conclusion, uh, I thank you very much for allowing me to testify. 
Thank you very much for your testimony. We'll hear from the applicant. Ms. Harris, it's been hours. Good afternoon again. <laughs> Pat Harris with Lurch Early and Brewer here on behalf of the applicant Toll Brothers. With me uh, is Jeff Driscoll with Toll Brothers and Timothy Rowe with Toll Brothers. Then we have the VICA team here, including Josh, Josh Sloan at the table, and we also have our traffic consultant who's participating virtually, Nick Dryben with Lenhart Traffic Consulting. Uh, I want to thank staff for all their hard work on this project. We've actually been working on this project since 2021. We've had numerous uh, charrettes, if you will, with staff to try to make sure that we get this project right. Um, and I think maybe the, the thing that tells that story the best is the fact, and staff showed it on their slides, are the high visibility sides of the project. Um, most townhouses typically don't do that. We took special care to make sure that uh, the high visibility uh, facades were throughout the project. And that's just one example of a number of the changes that we made. This is a great project at a great location, and it is consistent with the sector plan recommendations. I'd start off by saying that one of the things that the sector plan revalidated was the R30 zoning. And so this project is limited by that, that density of that R30 zoning. Um, it also includes 23 MPDUs and Importantly, those are owner-occupied NPDUs. If you ask DHCA about affordable housing, they'll say the most important thing to us is home ownership. And the, mo the second most important thing, or even just as equally important, is ownership in the down county in good school districts. And that's a rarity. And so this really comes at a premium that we're providing 23 of those types of units. Uh, we've worked hard to respond to the community. Uh, the examples are that of that are on the Preston side, shifting the the units further to the east to provide a greater buffer, providing some landscaping, certain landscaping and uh, screening fence along that that western property line. Uh, we've had several meetings with Chevy Chase Muse folks. So that's the community in between the two, the two phases, um, and, and another comment from the community across the street had to do with providing accessible public use space and um, access to the purple line and we were providing three three pedestrian accesses so we're, we're very proud of this project um, I want to touch on the utility question obviously um, I'll start off by saying and and mr. Carr said you know we need to respect sector plans and we definitely agree with that if you look at the sector plan what the sector plan says and staff pointed this out is that the undergrounding of utilities is to occur along Connecticut Avenue it, it doesn't say that it needs to occur along Manor Road further but that we didn't stop there and I, I will say we did all this in, in terms of our due diligence before they even had a, a final contract on the property because we wanted to know okay what what what's the overall cost of this development going to look like um, the complete streets document so you looked at the sector plan no recommendation for undergrounding and then we went to something called the complete streets what complete streets says and that's been in draft for a fairly fairly long period of time but it was recently adopted and it says that um, along roads such as this um, it, undergrounding is optional and it's context sensitive um, but the master plan recommendations supersede the guidance 
the context here is that the project at the corner, which was a CR zone development, meaning that it's a lot of density, it's, it's um, more than 500 units, that a determination was made there that um, uh, that project couldn't bear the cost of the undergrounding. And if a project that has five times as many units has difficulty bearing the cost of undergrounding, you can imagine the significant costs that would be associated with this project that has um, only 147 units of which less, you know, less 23 affordable units. So it, it ends up being a cost that, that's more than $40,000 per unit cost to underground. But in any event, we looked at the complete streets. The complete streets does not require undergrounding. And then we look at the county code and the two provisions of the county code, both in chapter 49 and chapter 50, don't require undergrounding. Um, I would also say that the suggestion of putting the underground, the utilities in the street, and I'm glad that there's recognition that the utilities back of curb could not occur because it would mean that all of the trees would, would need to come down. The cost of putting it in the street is exponentially higher than putting the, than typically undergrounding when you do it behind the curb. But in any event, the example that was given, the Linden to Sligo, Sligo to Linden example, that was a major line from substation to substation. If those wires were to be wiped out, it would wipe out a quarter of DC from power. That's significant. But even more significant is the cost to do that. It wasn't borne by a, an individual property owner. It was all PEPCO rate, rate payers. That's how they paid for it. I, I don't know of any other example except these substation to substation uh, undergroundings that ever occurs in within a street within the curb to curb area of a, of a right of way. So it, it's not consistent with the sector plan. Um, it, it, it's contrary to the sector plan in terms of preserving the canopy. Um, and it comes at an extremely significant cost. Um, and then the other thing I would, the final thing I would say about that, and we'd be happy to answer any questions on that topic, is the other thing to consider is during the DRC, PEPCO um, did not r require the undergrounding of, of that line. And PEPCO typically doesn't want it in the street. And the reason they don't want it in the street is because every time there's a maintenance issue, suddenly you need to close the streets and it's a, you know, and that comes at a cost, not only a, a physical, a, a monetary cost, but it comes at a cost to the people that are using that street to, to drive down. So it creates a, a lot of issue. And then finally, I would note, and I think there was a little bit of mischaracterization of the director of DOT. What he said was, our, op our preference is to have utilities um, in a PUA behind the curb. Um, and then, and then there were the, the second option was, um, well, the first option was a PUE, second one was behind the curb. And then what he said was, and only if those two options can't, don't work, then possibly the utilities could be placed in a street. There was not an indication from the director of DOT that they opened with open arms, embraced the concept of putting these utilities in the street. 
Um, so with that, I, I would just summarize and we would have, be happy to answer any questions. Um, we're excited about this project. We think it's a great project, great location, um, and we're happy to answer any of your questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. Commissioners, questions? Mitra. Thank you for presentation and thank you, Anne, for being Okay. <laughs> I think it's end of the day. It doesn't work well. Well, thank you for the presentation. Mm -hmm. Thank you all for uh, your concerns. Uh, I have questions in regard uh, to number of PDUs. Um, we have 23, and out of that 23, 15 is in phase two. So how do we manage that in regard to phase one and phase two to make sure that phase one is independent of phase two in case if phase two doesn't go. I do not know how the scheduling is. So I, I'll just answer because it, it, it's a little bit different here. So the zoning code require well, so the 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 fifteen percent requirement for MPDUs in Chevy Chase Lake is under Chapter Twenty Five A because of the new requirements that the council put on for income. So, for example, Friendship Heights also has uh, a fifteen percent MPDU requirement, and DHCA's agreement to build with the developer uh, looks at this as one project so as they and so they have one agreement to build for the 15.7 percent over the entire project so we are deferring to DHCA and their approach to the MPDUs for this project do we have a schedule that when phase two would go into construction after phase one or any kind of guarantee that how it was related because it's all has to do with the market isn't right. it um, I mean our goal is to do this project as quickly as possible but as we know um, well two two things and they relate to potential other issues that we may be discussing the, the the contract that the applicant has with the property owner is that they will not purchase phase two um, until approximately two years after pulling the permits for phase one. But the plan would be, I mean, it's in their interest to construct phase two as quickly as possible. Um, what happened was originally we actually did have 15% at phase one and 15% on phase two. And then um, in working through the project and making adjustments to respond to some comments related to environmental issues we had to pull push and pull the project and it ended up that two of the mpdus on the lake side got moved to the preston side but i will say we're providing one extra mpdu as we're providing an extra unit here and it's an mpdu so if you were to look at this um technically the the one the lake has one less mpdu than it should be providing overall i'd say because the because you could view that second one as the bonus one that we're providing that we're not required to provide. Anyone else? Yes. Um, <clears throat> let me ask you about burying the wire. Because um, this is a point that Mr. Carr raised, and, and um, I want to be sure that I understand. Now, uh, the rest of the development 
because I know there's been quite a bit of development around Chevy Chase Lake uh, and all the way from Maynard to um, Connecticut Avenue. And then what you're saying is that on Connecticut Avenue, the wires, the utilities are going to be buried. On Connecticut Avenue or no, not necessarily? Uh, they haven't been buried even all the way to the Lindley and beyond. There's no wires bur buried. Within the community, they're buried. But along Connecticut Avenue, despite the fact that the, that's where the sector plan said that the, the line should be buried, they are not buried. So on Mainer Road, there's no wires buried? No, correct. That is correct. Okay. That's all right, and that was a decision that was made. How about on Chevy Chase Lake? Are they buried? I am not familiar with that. Do you know? Yeah. So on, on Chevy Chase Lake Drive, the uh, undergrounding was required as part of the townhouse and Lindy development. Mm -hmm. That's on Chevy Chase Lake okay. Drive, and that is in part of that center area. Uh, your observation is correct about Chevy, uh, excuse me, Connecticut Ave. The wires are still up there. Uh, it's my understanding they weren't required to be undergrounded with Block B. So that's why we still see them there, but they were required with the Lindy and the uh, townhouses next to it on Chevy Chase Lake Drive. Do we have any idea how much it costs to bury those wires on the Lindley? Because the Lindley so must I, have been approved I, like I, maybe I, 10 years ago. I don't think we have those numbers. I think for the lines, uh, and I think um, Mr. Carr may have mentioned this, the, the lines on Connecticut Avenue are sort of high voltage transmission lines. Mm -hmm. So the cost, you know, I feel like it was an order of magnitude. It, it, it was very, it was much more expensive. And so they made the argument to the board at that time that it wasn't financially feasible. Um, but I don't believe we have the numbers, uh, at least handy. I think we could, we could get them, not today. For, uh, yeah, but do you drive. agree that the what uh, the applicant is uh, arguing that it's going to cost forty thousand dollars per unit? Is that more or less in the ballpark? Is that do we consider that reasonable? I mean, I'm, honestly, I'm I, you know I'm I'm not sure we're in a uh, I'm not sure we're in a position to have an expert opinion um, on that. I think we we balance um, a lot of factors and mm -hmm. provide our best professional judgment. We had gotten that number from our uh, utility consultant, Richter and Associates. Mm -hmm. That's where that okay. five million came from. All right. Okay. Anyone else? Commissioner? No. Oh. Yes. Um, I'd like to thank Mr. Carr for um, representing the uh, CR Club Montgomery and addressing the concerns that CR Club Montgomery had. Um, has Sierra Club Montgomery had an opportunity to converse with um, Pat, Pat Harris. Harris? I was going to call you Pat Carr. Sorry about that. Pat Harris and Toll Brothers with regards to your concerns, especially with regards to the tree issue and the um, burying of the utility lines and cables. Um, and if you've had those discussions, were they fruitful? And did the Sierra Club offer any alternatives other than burying the lines? So Mr. Carr reached out to me. Um, it was the week of February 23rd, uh, maybe a day or two before the, the previously scheduled hearing. Um, and, it, and he said he was representing the Sierra Club, though it's my understanding that the Sierra Club then had a meeting the very next day where this issue was raised. So I don't know if when he talked to me, 
when he initially contacted me, whether he was actually representing the views of the Sierra Club or the views that he was gonna to bring to the Sierra Club, but we have not had any discussions since then. So to the extent that the Sierra Club took a formal position, I didn't know it until I received the comments. Um, it was either, I think it was this morning that I received the comments, because I think they were filed around noon yesterday. So we were not aware of the Sierra Club's formal position. Do you have anything to add? Mr. Mr. Carr. Yeah, thank you, Commissioner Bartley, for that question. So, um, yeah, I did reach out to Pat, um, I think, a few days before the original hearing date, which is the 23rd, and, you know, discussed all these concerns that I had. You know, I knew that there was uh, support in this Sierra Club, even though we hadn't taken a formal vote yet. I... I um, said we wanted to see the lines buried and, and why we did uh, and what I had you know, learned about uh, other nearby projects. And really, this, the line on Manor Road is apples and oranges. This is a tiny line. Uh, one phase of a feeder line, it's very different than what's on Connecticut or what was in Sligo to Linden. Um, and we also expressed concern about the um, energy that, that the, the plans for the property are uh, natural gas, presumably for, uh, you know, water heating, space heating, and, and gas cooking, as opposed to where the world is going, which is, you know, heat pumps and all, all electric. So um, anyway, had that conversation, did not hear back from, from Pat after that. And we submitted our testimony on the 22nd. Uh, so, you know, timely, we thought that the original hearing date was going to go forward. So that's when we, Sierra Club, submitted our testimony to to the planning board. Though I believe that I received, I was aware of an email from you, but I don't think anything officially stating it was the Sierra Club's position came in until yesterday around there. Okay. Thank you. More questions? Uh, yeah, I do have another question. So um, the current sites are occupied, this is an unrelated Sierra Club, but the current sites are currently occupied by residents in those dwelling places, correct? Um, not exactly. So the lake portion is a, pretty much vacant at this point. Um, and the Preston piece, and that's the one on your screen on the right, that that is still occupied, um, again, because that's the second phase. Does that currently have any MPDUs or no? No, no neither, neither does. And in fact, you know, the, I heard the word naturally occurring affordable. The rents on that Preston piece, some of those go for 3600 a month. And, and a lot of the people that are living there, the owner had told us to share this with us, are people that are undergoing renovations of their houses that have to get out of their house for nine months or 12 months, and they end up renting here for, for you know, a year while they're doing major renovations on their homes. But at $3,600 a month, that's hardly affordable. But there are, even when the whole project was occupied, there were no MPDUs. Okay, thank you. Commissioner? Um, so I just want some clarity. I was trying to follow along with the, the staff report and the applicant. The connection to the purple line is down to the Crescent Trail and then over, as I'm looking at the red, over and then southwest. So there is, what, what is the timing from there, give or take? It's all dependent on the purple Whenever. line. Right? So the last information that we had was that they were... I believe it was 20, was it 2025 or 26? For the opening of that station? Late 2025 or okay. 2026. Okay, 2026. 
That's all. I was Anything? Uh, let me start slow. Um, parking. It looks like uh, all of the parking is privatized and there's no guest parking anywhere on this site? Um, no. So each unit has parking for two people. And then on the lake side, there are 16 surface spaces. And on the Preston side, there are 22 surface spaces. Unfortunately, the scale of what's before you cannot, it's hard to say. Surface spaces mean, meaning on street? Within, I'm sorry, you're, within the townhouse community. So along the private streets, there's- Along the yes. private street. I'm, yes. I'm and then there is parking available along Manor Drive as well. And I did notice in all of your fine illustration, uh, no fences over four foot tall. Is that a, a, a restriction you plan on putting in? Because otherwise you box in these trails. Um, I'm going to defer to Mr. Sloan on that one. Good afternoon. Josh Sloan with BICA. So the, there will be privacy fences that are a little bit taller on the sides of the units to provide some privacy for each unit side by side. But the rear units, especially the ones that are looking over the trail, those are restricted to four feet so that you don't have that box-in feeling. And there is good visibility and eyes on the public open space for safety reasons. So do we have a condition related to the height of fences? No, we currently do not. It, it seems to me if you want that kind of open view, you need to make sure it's open. And I know the tendency of townhouses is to enclose their backyards. So I would suggest some conditions that way. Um, I have other concerns on, um, well, two, two things really. Number one, the, the justification for an extension due to current economic conditions is generic to every property that comes before us. I suggest to you and to my colleagues that if we agreed with that, it's for the council to agree to that, which is the way we just recommended the BAS, to change the legislation to extend the time. So I don't consider that a reason that we could recognize uh, to extend. Yeah, you got the purple line. That's a, that's a, that's a real routine. And, and staff says it's going to be Finished in this area by 2025 or finished totally in 2025? I think staff is saying that that's what someone else is saying. <laughs> <laughs> staff does not want a cop to when the Purple Line is going to be uh, completed. Uh, I, I used to have a planning um, guru who said if you were ever making fort, anybody who uh, used a crystal ball deserved to, uh, better be ready to eat ground glass somewhere. But, but if uh. I w could comment on the validity periods, um, as I said, the Preston piece, the applicant will not have ownership of that until approximately two years. So typically you're Plan validity is three years, your APF is five years. So because they 
likely will not be able to even start doing anything for two years on the second phase. That we quickly got to a justification of five years for plan validity and seven for for the APF. And then the and then the additional two years that we we're requesting were to be frank, similar to the things that you said, those big global issues, whether it's the economic environment or the, you know, interest rates, et cetera. But the, but the additional two years um, is necessary because otherwise, you know, they would not, there's existing how ownership on, I mean, not ownership, people living at Preston, the, the current owner of the property, Chevy Chase Land, wanted to make sure that the people that are living there could continue to live there until the actual development activity was going to start to occur. So that's why they said they wanted a lagged contractual agreement. But because the, the work on that cannot begin for two years, it would be very unfair to not recognize the additional two years for the second phase. That would put the applicant in a bind to try to get things uh, completed. Actually, either the it would hurry the applicant, or he would be back here for an extension for an um, amendment to the plan. Um, when we look at the extension requests, it's not. First of all, it's not. not it's not an extension. It would be an amendment to the plan. An amendment. It'd be a. Actually, I think it would be an extension of the a request to extend the validity period. Yeah, the, and right. that's not that one. That is not assured and two there are certain requirements that need to occur for instance one of the requirements is that the um, I, th I believe it's 50% of the units need to be constructed and by virtue of Lake having less than 50% of mm -hmm. Preston we wouldn't be able to meet that criteria I did look at several other cases to see whether there was precedent for this and on cases that have you know, more than a handful of towns, an extended APF period and plan validity period is is common. And I can point you to three examples that happened within the last couple of years. Um, there was the Hanson project up, up in Potomac, which was 100 and, hold on one second, 180, uh, 187 lots. They had a 10-year APF and a six-year validity period. And then there was the Cabin John Village in 2018 um, that had 59 towns. Now that also did have a commercial component, but in their approval, they the approval specifically focused on the towns and said um, when the various towns needed to be completed. 48 of them had to be completed within three years, or I mean begun, commenced within three years. Um, and then the remain then they talked about the commercial and then they said 11 in nine years and then the final one was the wilgus tract up off montrose parkway and um that was 107 towns and that also had a 10-year apf period so it's not uncommon to have something more than a five-year apf period when you have 147 and, towns. and all of those had some progress to to have the extension that is they had some completion and we we would def I mean, our completion would be completion, commencement of the lake parcel within the, within the normal three-year, th the normal five-year APF period. 
Is that I mean, a condition I, that we have, that, that uh, phase one has to be uh, started within five years? I forgot the... I mean, it, wasn't, it was not our intent to try it. I mean, we would definitely be willing to tie it to phase one. That was our intent. Let me look at the specifics. I'm looking to staff who's cuddling. <laughs> so phase one is only valid for three years. It's only valid for three years. As in the, the condition. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so phase one, so how about we, we extend if phase one is started within three years? I mean, we're already working on a sediment control permit, so we, that, we have no issue with that, pro, that condition. Our concern is more phase two. Yeah, our condition is phase two, that we need a little extra time because of the two-year period before they can get on that, on that portion of the property. All right, but staff looks confused like we don't have that condition right now. So let's, so let's here, can you give me the condition so I can read it out for everybody? All right. Um, all right, so this is uh, proposed condition three under the preliminary plan. The preliminary plan for phase one, the lake tract, as shown on the certified preliminary plan containing 63 lots and eight parcels, will remain valid for three years from its, from its initiation date as defined in the code. And before the expiration date of this validity period, the applicant must record a final record plat for all property, property delineated on the approved plan within phase one in the land records or file for an extension. So that's, you would have to plat within three years. Right, and that's, that's what the law requires right. now. Right. But that, that's right. unconnected to the adequate public facilities requirement above, which extends it for uh, nine years. Well, it, but it says 2A is phase one, five years. From the initiation date as defined, the applicant must obtain all building permits so for all towns within phase one. So currently, the way I read this condition, for phase one, we have to do exactly what the code requires, which is plat within three years and pull building permits within five years. Mm -hmm. And then the phase two... Has nine years independent, according to this. No, it, it was supposed you to be would have to cumulative. Plat in six... Yeah, so for phase one, you would have to plat in three yeah. and permit in five. And for phase two, you would have to plat within six years of approval and permit within nine years of approval. But I want to only, what I'm suggesting is you only get to, to phase through, uh, two. And it sounds like it's what you're going to be doing anyhow. Uh, you only get to phase two if you platted within three years for phase one. That's okay. So are we saying for condition two, uh, which is APF, phase two, nine years from the initiation date, must obtain all building permits for all townhouses within phase two, provided condition three below has been met. Yeah, I would, I would put that the provided in the first sentence, though, on the nine years. Provided condition three below has been met, it's nine years. Otherwise, it's five years. Five years. Okay. See what I'm saying? The, other, the last thing I have, um, 
is, uh, you know, I look at phase three and I look at those three phase. units within that sort of square and say, gee, that compacts a space that's, uh, that, that could be a, a bigger uh, asset to the community uh, and it sort of crowds them. If I'm, I, I'm not a designer, um, uh, but if I were to uh, just allow you 81 lots on phase two, you'd have some flexibility to move that open space around. I, well, I would say that we're not even meeting the standard method density of R30 currently. The project is much lower than that. Um, and eliminating three dwelling units is significant. We meet our open space requirements. We're providing um, the, the, the north-south connection and, and the stream restoration area. Um, Rock Creek Park is about a half a mile, quarter of a mile to the west of, to the east of this. Um, we meet okay. all. It's, it's not an optional method project. We're meeting, we're meeting the, the okay. requirements of the R30 zone. And you are providing the two direct connections to the Capitol Crescent Trail. There are well, there's three really because there's one on Phase One and then on Phase Two on Lake, two on Preston, one on Lake. Is that right? Do I have that right? One, one connection on Preston. Oh, one sorry. and one, and then a connection between. between the yes. Okay. Right, and then the connection between. Yeah. Yes. Can I ask That's all that I have. Question for clarification: Those uh, the trails and everything will be publicly accessible, right? That move between Manor and the Gravel Crescent Trail and come through there. Okay. Clarify. And and the note the limit on fencing helps that a little. That was what I was. That's another thing. <laughs> we we we've got we've got some in my neighborhood. All those fences are falling down at the moment. So let's address that. But, uh, yeah, I, I have a comment and observation. So um, this project is going to be modernizing old um, prior developed real estate and dwelling units. And one of the things that um, is the trend is subterranean lines. And, and it's interesting to me that um, a redevelopment of old units is not also considering um, placing the lines underground, which seems to be the modern trend. Am I missing something? Well, I will say that within the community, the lines are undergrounded. It's just along the manor. So we are following the trend within the internal areas of the project. It is only along manor. I will also say that when you look at, for instance, complete streets, what it says when it talks about guidance for undergrounding, it says specific um, consideration should be given to the CR optional method developments. And for those new on the board, the CR zone is the zone where it's higher densities and where you get the opportunity for more units that can support these costly endeavors. Here, this is an R30 development. We're not getting additional density. In fact, we almost just lost three units of our density, and we weren't even at the, we're not even at the max. So it's, it's significant. Um, it's a cost that, you know, people complain about the cost of housing, 
and then suddenly there's a $40,000 increase on a, on a unit to, to underground um, when, it, when there's no indication in any document that, it, that it's a requirement. I understand it's not a requirement, but as far as aesthetics and improvement to the community, um, there's a balance that I think um, I'm going to have to deal with mm -hmm. in wanting to have the most livable community and then also wanting to modernize communities and provide moderate dwelling units, you know, um, requirements as opposed to what is in the best interest of the community, I think are two different things. I mean, you know, when we look at this community, the trees and the wires have coexisted for a very long time. And again, in furtherance of the sector plan, the goal was preserve the, the can tree can canopy as best as possible. And um, certainly not undergrounding if we were to underground behind the curb, all those trees go out and it dramatically changes the character of the neighborhood. Um, and as I said, I don't know of any example except substation to substation where the wires have been put in the street. And that also, that actually adds an extra cost because suddenly then you have um, street maintenance and, and road, uh, you know, having to monitor and deviate traffic and such. The, the substation to substation uh, undergrounding, they, their goal was to at least be able to underground 20 feet a day. That gives you a sense of how slow and laborious and costly it is to underground in the street. And one of the uh, contractors that was involved in that project said they'd be shocked if they even were able to accomplish that 20 feet a day. I mean, it's, it's not, it's not an insignificant ask. Anyone else? Oh, entertain a motion. Can, can I just make a, a, a clarification? So at one point, the chair suggested a condition on fences, and I want to just make sure that that's what the board is still considering. I think the units that would have fences are on the are on the perimeters, um, and so fences wouldn't have a negative impact on the common spaces. One of the concerns about having a condition for fences is that individual property owners would then have to meet that condition. And so if I buy a townhome and I want a four and a half foot fence, I would put the developer in violation of the site plan. So I, I just, I wanna, I wanna just understand better if the board is is considering a fence condition. You, you are having backyards as private property as a part of the, instead of the common open space areas? The backyards are private property and then beyond they're that not, in some instances. They're not counted towards common open yeah. space. Well, and, and also common open space is gonna be different than sort of HOA space. So common open space is intended to be shared. We would not recommend common open space behind, you know, between people's fences. That's gonna be where the HOA does their mowing. That's where the drains are. So the area back there would not be common open space for community use. Can you suggest a condition that would meet my objective? Can, I guess, could you help me understand your objections better? Um, to, if you put up six foot fences next, next to uh, open space, it looks like you're, you're next to a prison. 
The only towns that have backyards onto common open space are the ones along the trail on the east. And we have put a detail in our certified site plan, well, hopefully soon to be certified site plan, our, cert our site plan submission with um, fences that are open lattice, aluminum, so that there is visibility, porosity through there, so it does not feel uh, like any kind of uh, enclosed space. How but high? They, they could be up to six feet because they have four foot or four inch spacing between the pickets. Um, I mean, in your illustrations, you're showing no fences. There's a fence behind the planting that's hard, hard, admittedly hard to see on this. Uh, but those, that's the only condition where you would see these backyard fences when you're in common open space. And given the width and then the area of the Stream Valley buffer to the east, I don't think it would have such an impact if 10 years down the line someone did put up a fence. So are the fences that you're proposing, and if I haven't said so before, Elsa Heisel, McCoy, Chief Down County Planning for the record. I said it a lot today, but I don't think I said it during this session. Um, are all of the fences meant to be metal, or do you have wooden fences? We have wooden privacy fences running perpendicular to the rear facades, and then open aluminum fencing in the parallel, parallel. backyard. So if there was a condition that said along common, like no solid fences along common open space? No solid fences above, above four feet. dimension? Would that address it? Above four feet? Parallel, parallel to parallel to public right <laughs> so I have one question if you put this requirement for fence okay after the developer is gone and the homeowners are coming in who's going to enforce them if it is DPS that enforce them they do have requirement for fence that not to be more than six foot okay so I'm just wondering that we could put these requirements but then after it's built and the individual homeowners come later on. Unless that there is something in HOA governance, nobody else except DPS is going to enforce them. And right now, DPS requirements is six foot. Well, it's no more than six feet. No more than six right, foot. Right, because otherwise Maximum. you need to meet setbacks. Yes. Right. Yeah. We're, we're hip to that. I, so I think the, the, so I think as a, I, we, on its own, staff would not recommend the condition. If a condition is, if that's where the board's going, I think we just want to be clear that it would be just on the common open spaces, and then it would be incumbent upon the HOA right. to inform property owners that if you are adjacent to a common open space, you cannot have a fence higher than four feet along that edge. And that would be the part of developer to work with the HOA to put it in. Okay. Can I just clarify a question on the fence? Sorry, I'm going to ask one more question on the fence issue. Uh, backing up to the uh, Crescent Trail, does that also include that or just along the common open spaces at the... There's the a grade separation. There's grade separation. Okay. There's significant grade set uh, separation the back and sound crescent. walls and retaining walls there. Anyway. Okay, gotcha. I'm clarifying. That's, that's a different world. That's a separate thing. All right. Are we ready for a motion? You can, you can go any way you want. <laughs> 
right. Move to approve the preliminary plan with the uh, with the conditions uh, that staff provided and the ones we just discussed here. And I would second that. So in including the, the open fence. Yeah, all the okay. amendments. Uh, yeah. That would be in the site plan. Oh, that's the so site plan part? Okay. That's right. We have two approvals here. Any other discussions? Seeing none, uh, can I have a motion on preliminary plan 1-2022-0130? Uh, uh, move that we approve the preliminary plan 1-2022-0130. I think I got all the numbers in there with the conditions discussed previously. <laughs> can I have a second? I, I would second. Oh, okay. For a second, I was worried. Okay. All those in favor, say aye. 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 All right, okay. Uh, there are no no's. Uh, can I have a motion on the site plan in which these conditions lie? <coughs> motion on the site plan? I will also move to approve the site plan 820220180 uh, with the condition on the fencing as discussed. Can I have a second? Second. Okay. Um, no further discussion. All those. Oh, I'm sorry. Be before you vote, just to be clear, I want to make sure that the commissioner's vote includes not only the fence but also the other site plan modifications as recommended by staff. Yes, the motion. Yeah, my motion would include the other site plan modifications by staff and the, the fencing just discussed. Yeah, and the other ones included the 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 amendments to the phasing uh, the phasing uh, validity periods. I get there's too many words for the same thing here. Um, okay, all those in favor say aye. 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 Five zero. Thank you. Thank you very much. And Thank congratulations you, Mr. to the board. We appreciate your coming. Uh, and uh, believe it or not, for our first session, we are adjourned. So thank you. <laughs>